Weather above treeline in the White Mountains is often wildly different than at our trailheads. Before you hike, check the Higher Summits forecast at mountwashington.org. Weather observers working at the nonprofit Mount Washington Observatory write this evaluation-based forecast every morning and afternoon. Search and rescue teams, avalanche experts, and backcountry guides all rely on the Higher Summits forecast to anticipate weather conditions above treeline. You should too. Go to mountwashington.org or text FORECAST to 603-356-2137. And the forecast for this weekend starting April 14th, Friday. Friday, high pressure over Bermuda will build northward and will mix out any lingering low-level clouds. The front may provide scattered cloud cover as well as a potential for pockets of fog by the afternoon. The front will likely clear the area later Friday night with little in the way of fanfare. Saturday will feature cooler and cloudier conditions with the passage of the backdoor cold front. While cooler, Saturday's high temperature will still be well above average and will result in continued snowmelt. Friday, in and out of the clouds under partly sunny skies with a high in the upper 40s. Winds blowing northwest, shifting west at 40 to 55 miles an hour, decreasing early to 15 to 30 miles an hour. Friday night, in and out of the clouds under mostly cloudy skies with a low in the 40s. Winds at 15 to 30 miles an hour coming from the west, decreasing to 5 to 20 miles per hour, possibly becoming light and variable at times. And for Saturday, in and out of the clouds under mostly cloudy skies, trending towards in the clouds, steady in the lower 40s, west winds between 5 to 20 miles an hour, increasing to 15 to 30 miles an hour midday, and then decreasing to 5 to 20, possibly becoming light and variable at times late. say that so that you'll like be impressed with me but I don't really know what it means 
I can hear it usually, but uh, yeah, it sounds great. Excellent, excellent. So um, definitely sounds good. Welcome to 101, Stomp. Um, 101. Yeah, we're in like warm weather. I feel like today was the day where I declared that like spring weather is here, summer weather is here. It's like toasty upstairs. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, today was amazing. It hit um, 80 in Lincoln today, which is incredible. Yes. And, uh, which is what's funny though, it's like I'm down here in the studio and I'm freezing oh, yeah. to death. I've got my little blanket and the doors closed. You know, the basement's oh, yeah. open. I'm in mine right now yeah. and it's so cool. Like I was upstairs sitting on the deck, with, <laughs> um, just enjoying the warm weather. But then I came down here, I was like, oh, it's nice and mm. cool. So, yeah. Oh, I'm ready for it. But yeah. I was a little hesitant to uh, get out there and run today just because of the heat. So I'm going to hit it tomorrow. Yeah. Now, but, will you mm. have, tr- do you like, Actually, I feel like you, you give off a vibe. Like, do you sleep in, like naked in the summer, like when it's super hot, or do you not do that? Or are we allowed to? Is that weird? That I that was a weird question, but sorry. No, no. Now that the, the warmer weather's here, it's like I, I'll usually actually sleep in crazy cotton sweatpants and things like that. I love being bundled up and just warm, um, even in the hotter weather. My my wife thinks I'm nuts, but I like the opposite. It's sort of strange. Interesting, yeah. How about you? I don't know. I always, you gave out that vibe of naked sleeper just, and I think the reason why I think that is because you told me your dad went to Woodstock and I think that automatically that makes you a naked sleeper. I don't know why, but. Just assume. Yeah, exactly. But uh, I'm going to keep my my sleeping routine private. So um, suffice it to say. I won't lie. I Occasionally, sure, but I'm, I'm one of the people that like get nervous about a fire in the middle of the night and just getting stuck outside of my home naked running around. Yeah, yeah, no, I get that. I understand that. I understand that. So this is definitely the weirdest start to a show ever. So stomp and uh, sleeping naked. But um, Easter Mountain Sports, so we did episode 100. We had a pretty good crowd there. Uh, what did you think? It was good. What did you think? Did you hear, anybody from, hear anything from anyone? I, you know, honestly, I've, I've heard nothing but positive reviews. I think the content really nailed it. I know it wasn't probably the most um, uh, typical place for a, a celebration like that, but, you know, we had to say thanks to EMS in some way for all their support. And I think in, in total, it was a really great afternoon together. Oh yeah, for yeah, sure. Was I actually loved watching the people walk in that like weren't there for us and their reaction felt like, what did I just step into? <laughs> I know. And the way we were angled, yeah. we were literally looking at the door and the registers like, what are you, what, what are you buying? Hey you, what are you buying? Yeah, yeah, so it was so yeah, good. Was like so I knew funny. all the guests were going to be great, but we didn't know who was going to talk for EMS and Daryl was like fantastic. We got to get him back on. Yeah. I think he could be a future co-host. Yeah, no doubt. No, yeah, he nailed it. He just uh, hit it out of the park. But uh, yeah, Ty, Ty was great, and um, Ben and um, the Alzheimer's crew. I mean, it was just a really nice time. Yes. It was nice to hang out with everybody, and we thank you for all for coming out because it really is a, a nice uh, moment for us. Hundred in, and uh, just, things are just getting started. I think, yes. which is really neat. Yeah. Thank you, listeners. We appreciate you, yeah. um, but don't give us any feedback. Just, just five stars and listen um what else of the show stomping any other talking points bullet points you want to cover oh i thought the um the chat gpt <laughs> joke segment was a little rough around the awful. edges awful so uh we're never doing that. you know when i was 
when I was editing it uh, the next day, I actually couldn't find any places to put in those but on bump drum rolls. Yeah. So I'm like, where are the funny points? Yeah, it wasn't like it wasn't a. It was like an essay, not a comedy thing. So, uh, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. That's that's the difference. It was definitely written differently. Yeah. Uh, one one bit of housekeeping that I, I messed up on is so we had a little bit of a scheduling change. So I had said the Caroline segment about Hawaii was going to be this week. It's actually going to be next week. So um, we've got another segment that we're doing, which I'll cover in the show opener, which you want me to do right now? Sure. All right. So welcome to episode 101 of the Sounds Like a Search and Rescue podcast this week. We bring you a story of an unlikely friendship and the impressive perseverance of a community of hikers that pulled together to help out a friend complete a single season winter 48. So this week, our friends Mike and Tom join us for a segment discussing their approach to completing one of the more difficult list pursuits in the White Mountains, hiking the entire 4,000 footer list over the three-month winter season. I got a chance to talk with Mike and Tom about their friendship, the planning that goes into a single-season winter list, the support that they receive from all of their their new friends, their old friends, and even some strangers. Uh, I had a great time talking with these two gentlemen, and I think that you'll all enjoy it as well. All this and some Mount Washington observatory history, some pop culture talk, planning for a backpacking trip to Yosemite National Park, and a segment about the history of Limmer Boots, which is a legendary local gear company out of Interville, New Hampshire. So, um, I'm Mike. And I'm Stomp. Let's get started. Excellent, excellent. So, all right, we covered the warm weather here. Um, so, Stomp, you've got something in here. A call is out to help repair summit registers. What's that all about? Yeah, there's a Facebook page called the New Hampshire 100 to 500 Highest Mountains. And Brian Bond, um, who I know as a finisher of the 500, has put out a call to uh, the bushwhacking community to actually help uh, fix or replace all of the registers that may be defunct on some of these uh, more obscure bushwhacks and hikes. So essentially he's asking, carry a spare jar, a plastic bag, register pencil, and string with you. Leave the existing register in the new jar for others to enjoy. If there's no register and you're sure you're on the recognized high point, replace it. Make sure to write down the peak name, elevation, and the date of replacement. And um, there's more information on this post, which is pretty interesting. But it covers basically everything from the 3,000 footers to the 200, 300, and... Uh, 2,000 footers and the 500 highest less. So I've experienced that actually. I've, I've seen some pretty defunct registers up there. And what we mean by registers, they're just those PVC or you know glass jars that people leave with the notebooks on the inside so that you can jot down when you got to the summit, who you were with and you know things like that. So, All right. So if I'm understanding this, then they're saying it's not just like the paper book that you signed to say you've been there, but you're actually talking about the PVC tubes that you attach to the uh, you attach to the trees so how are you supposed to know whether or not you should replace it or not or are you just supposed to leave them both up there generally when the notebook on the inside is damp and wet or the pencils are wet um, you know it's time to change it or if there's 
material damage to the actual housing or the you know cracks in the plastic that type of thing in my opinion i think the glass jars are probably the worst the pvcs are great but again they wear out over time Mm -hmm. Um, sometimes the trees that they're on fall and as a result do some damage to the registers so it's i guess it's somewhat subjective but there's a few things you can look for namely a damp notebook on the inside okay and I yeah. can't remember, like, and I haven't been to too many, honestly. Like, I've been to a few, but how do they mount them to the trees? Is it like a, um, is it a zip tie, or do they use like those? Um, I feel mm. like some of them use those screwdriver, those metal screwdriver bracket things, but I can't remember. It's a, a variety of methods. Um, okay. I mean, for the PVC, I've seen them bolted in, uh, tie wrapped on. There's a, a multitude of methods. It depends who puts them up there. I, got, I don't think there's any particular standard. Okay. Interesting. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I got to get out there and do some bushwhacking and actually see some of these registers. Maybe the captain is in my, my plans for next year or something oh, later this year. That'd be awesome. Yeah. I'm always down for the captain. Yeah, I know you are. So we'll see. And then next up, yeah. uh, Wild New Hampshire Day coming on April 15th. What is this all about, Stomp? pretty neat every year fishing game has this day and basically it's uh called wild new hampshire and it celebrates just the outdoors and um they pack the day with family fun and um you can see live animals big fish falcons retrieving dogs in action 60 outdoor uh and conservation organizers or organizations from around the state will be there to share their exhibits. It's a great time for the kids. A lot of the fishing game officers are there. Um, so it's a great, especially if you have little ones. And this oh, yeah. will be held at Fishing Game Department, uh, 11 Hazen Drive in Concord. And it's free. And that's tomorrow, Saturday, April 15th from 10 to 3. Sounds like fun. Take the little ones out and enjoy the nice weather this weekend. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Let's dive into some White Mountains history, shall we? So the uh, next segment here, we're going to do a little bit of history about the Mount Washington Observatory, which is known as the home to the world's worst weather or coolest weather, if uh depending on how you look at it here. But so we're, it's official, like they're one of our sponsors now, right? Yes, absolutely. Yep. People have just heard the intro uh, for this show. So that, I think that's the plan. We'll just have it sort of open up the whole show and um, prime people up for their hikes for the weekend. Excellent. And then are you doing any commentary about the, the weather to give people advice or are you just letting, doing the, the higher summit forecast? So basically, I'll be reading the actual ad copy that was provided to us and then actually read myself the forecast for the next few days for the weekend. Okay. And uh, of course, we're going to have the um, the great Paul Bisson do a nice intro, but that's in the works. So maybe Excellent. in a week or two. Mm. Awesome. All right. So a little bit about the... Yeah. And I, I did some digging and you did some digging. So a little bit about sort of the history of... 
um, the sort of weather observation on Mount Washington. So the observatory officially opened in 1932, but there was a fair amount of activity going on in the 1800s, particularly, you know, there was a lot of like early map makers that were involved in, you know, getting out and exploring the white. So I think like step one was, um, you know, let's get some mapping and understand the lay of the land. Then you saw a lot of um, academics coming up, particularly like botanists and people that were interested in forestry and things like that. And then at the same time, you also had um, a number of scientists that were particularly interested in weather conditions on and around the mountains. So by 1870, there was a group of scientists that had uh, basically put together an expedition to observe observe, uh, Mount Washington's winter weather with the idea that they could hopefully improve forecasting knowledge. So uh, everybody sort of looked at this side-eyed and said like, yeah, they're not going to really survive up there. But this team of of scientists were able to get up there and uh, they gathered a lot of data over the season. And this data got, you know, spread pretty widely across the scientific community and got the attention of what's called the United States Signal Service, which is sort of the, the organization that started before the National Weather Service. Um, so they did maintain a weather station on the summit up until 1892. I don't know if they were up there every year over the winter between 1870 and 1892, um, but this this mountaintop station was one of the first of its kind in the world, and it was it was it was used by you know the model was used by a number of different other uh, weather researchers. So. Around 1892, it became dormant, but by um, about 40 years later, there was a group of civilians that founded what's now known as the Mount Washington Observatory um, to continue the signal services work. So they didn't have a lot of funding, but they did land a research grant. And Mm -hmm. it was four gentlemen that reestablished the station in October of 1932. It was a pretty rugged sort of environment there. You know, nobody really had any time off. They didn't get paid anything, uh, but they were able to establish a a system where they could um, crack weather. And they got kind of lucky because within two years or a year and a half or so, um, they actually were on the summit when uh, the observatory recorded the world's fastest surface wind speed ever observed by man, which is 231 <laughs> miles an hour, which I think got broken somewhere. Um, 1934. Yeah, it was in 1934, but I think- Oh, it two- was broken. Yeah, I think I think the record was broken like a few years ago or something like that. But oh, I, I, I had no idea. Yeah. But basically, this gave them enough recognition where sort of the value of a permanent mountaintop station was recognized, and the Mount Washington Observatory was established as a nonprofit organization. Um, and then they were basically 80, 80 years later or so, um, they've been, you know, it's been established that they're, you know, a, um, you know, a, a well established sort of weather research um, organization that is. You know, relied on by a lot of hikers. They do a lot of insight in different weather patterns. And, you know, Mount Washington in particular has a very interesting, um, you know, position geographically on how the weather flows through the atmosphere. So it's a, um, mm-hmm. it's a pretty fascinating place there. And if you haven't gone up there, I highly recommend it. You can take the auto road up, you can take the cog up, or you can hike. And we've talked about it numerous times on how you can get up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a great place. Yeah, yeah. So I was just talking to um, 
I was just talking to a few people today. I'd actually love to get a few people to go up and see the uh, the rally race with the cars. And I don't know when that is. I don't think the time has been announced yet, but um, that's a great time. I think you can either hike or take vehicles up beforehand and then hike down to watch these vehicles race up there. But that might be fun. Yeah, yeah. I would definitely like to do that. And I think one other thing I call out about the observatory stomp that like recently happened was that um, they did um, observe a, um, I guess, a wind chill of 109 degrees below zero, which they think could be the lowest recorded wind chill temperature in the U.S. So there's a lot of places where like extreme weather does happen, but Mount Washington's unique because it's the only place where there's actually people stationed. Mm -hmm. Was that during that uh, Arctic snap? Yeah, yeah, that was was in February, I think. So um, crazy. interesting. Yeah, and I think they're currently busy working on clearing the auto road at this point. There's a whole work crew that focuses on clearing out the sort of the drainage and uh, a lot of the snow off of the road. They have a whole drainage system to ensure that the road doesn't get eroded from underneath. So there's a whole crew that manages that, and I've seen them putting out like some posts on the, you know, there's the auto road group that does that, but Mm. the observatory relies on the road to get a lot of their workers and volunteers up there. Did you see the height of the snow walls on either side of the plowing? It's crazy. Unbelievable. Yeah. Yeah. I think I know where that is, too. I think that's roughly just beyond four miles, where they usually in the winter go up by a different route with the snow cats. But for that dirt section that's now paved, I believe that's the area that really just gets buried. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense. I mean, so the for mm. the auto road in particular at that four mile mark, it, it sort of hits four miles and around four thousand feet. It's probably like forty four hundred feet, and it's right sort of in that area where um, it used to turn from pavement to dirt before you approach the the uh, the U turn. That area there has a number of sort of turnoffs and like flat sections where I would assume. There's a lot of snow collection that goes on there, and they can also utilize that to sort of store extra snow if they need to clear it off the roads. Yeah, I think that's the northeast side, so that would make a lot of sense, too, in terms of snowpack. Yeah, exactly. It's sort of right when you approach, like, that's sort of your first view of the Great Gulf where you can kind of look right across and see, like, Madison Gulf to begin with, and then you you kind of go, you head up towards Nelson Crag and and Huntington Ravine, where the U-turn is and then come back into the Great Gulf. So it's, I can't mm. wait to run it. Yeah. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah, same here. It's going to be great. Yes. Getting Very a little exciting. more confident. Yeah, me too. But uh, me too. just yesterday was the 12th of April. We're recording on the 13th and uh, that was when they recorded that 231 mile an hour wind at the observatory and they call it Big Wind Day, apparently. Pretty neat. Yeah, yeah, it's so every amazing. April twelfth. Very good. So yeah, a lot of history there. Looking forward to the partnership with the Mount Washington Observatory, and um, we want everyone to make sure they're checking out the Higher Summits forecast and making good judgment um, when it comes to weather conditions when they're getting out and hiking. Hey, what's that sound? It must be time for the pop culture segment with Mike and Stomp. All right, Stomp. 
Uh, next up is pop culture talk here. So you added a couple of things here. I don't have much to say about this first one, so why don't you cover it? Wow. I've been waiting for a show like this for a long time. It's, um, believe it or not, it's, it's a dark comedy. It's with Steven Yeun, who is well known for uh, Walking Dead and yep. other things. But uh, it's called Beef. And it's basically, without giving any hints, uh, it's a road rage that just escalates. And um, it's phenomenal. And um, it just came out a few days ago, but it's going viral really quick. And... I'm not the only one to say it. Everybody I've talked to, it's just like, you have to see this. So definitely check it out. It's worth it. What, the first uh, episode what, what alone, we'll it just, on? it's on Netflix. Okay. Yeah. And it's with, um, I think her name is Ali, uh, either Young or Wong. I think it's one or the other, but she's a comic. And um, she's the antagonist, protagonist. Which, however, I mean, both of them can be either good or bad in this show. But uh, boy, is it clever. It's very, very funny, too. Highly mm-hmm. recommended. So dark comedy about um, a road rage incident. So I'll check it out because I just finished watching. It's good. Um, what the heck was it? I forget. It's like a fantasy show I've been watching. I can't even remember the name of it now. Sword and something. Um, on Netflix hmm. that I just wrapped up, so I need a new series, so I'll watch this tonight. Oh, give it give it one episode and you'll be hooked. It's okay. so, so smart. Okay, and then um, next up here is Amazon's Rings of Power, which was the, this is the prequel to Lord of the Rings set in mm-hmm. Middle Earth. Um, Amazon, I think, invested, what was it, like $2 billion on this series? And it, how many seasons yeah. going to be? Massive. At this point, I don't even think they could do another one because they're so in the hole for this monetarily. But you never know. Um, the gist of this story is that only 37% in the U.S. of viewers who started the series actually watched the rest of the remaining episodes. Um, and overseas, the completion, completion rate was similar, but only at about 45%. Um, so that's pretty rough, man, for that yeah. investment. Yeah, you know what? It's unfortunate too because there was actually like I stuck with it, and there was some yeah. good stuff in sure. you know the last few episodes. But I think the mistake they made is like I think with Game of Thrones, the good thing that they mm-hmm. would do is they would they would do like a short build up, then they'd give you a payout with a really good episode every three or four episodes and then they would build mm-hmm. up again. I think the problem with this this Rings of Power is that they did six or seven episodes of just build up and you couldn't keep oh, track yeah. of who's who and it was just very confusing. Just too much. Yeah. I gotcha. And, the, and speaking of House of Dragons, I think it came out roughly around the same time so they were competing too and House of Dragons just dominated. Yeah. Yeah. Another other news that's actually not on the script, but I just, my, matter of fact, my nephew Connor, shout out to Connor, he's a big hiker. He had texted me and said that um, HBO just greenlit a new series for Game of Thrones. So they're going to be um, bringing Duncan Egg, which is a prequel series um, based, I think, about like maybe 100 years, 80 years before Game of Thrones. And it's based on um, Aegon Targaryen. So it's another sort of. Um, Targaryen family story, but it's sort of about Aegon Targaryen, who is Aegon the Fourth, who had basically gone out on his own to become a squire for um, Sir Duncan the Tall. He was originally a hedge knight, and it's a whole story about the early adventures of 
Aegon Targaryen being a, sort of pretending like he's a commoner as a squire to support Sir Dunk. So it's going to be awesome. There's like battles that go mm. on. There's all kinds of like sort of politics, romance. It's it's going to be great. <laughs> it's amazing. All right, Stomp. So next up, you, ha- you I picked this one up too. You have something here. So Joe Rogan's podcast issued a warning after an AI version of his podcast surfaces. So somebody took Joe Rogan's podcast and I don't know, they fed ChatGPT a bunch of stuff. They created a fake guest and then they had... The host, which was using Joe Rogan's voice, and the guest using some other guest, they was sort of they had this one hour episode where they they basically mimicked a Joe Rogan podcast and talked a lot about ChatGPT and the future of AI, and it certainly mm-hmm. sounded like him, and the guest sounded pretty pretty good. You could sort of tell it was like AI, but it makes me think like me and you, we may not actually have to it's record the along. show. We can just load our old shows, and it'll come up with ideas for us. Yeah, for sure. I, I think it was a big flex on the uh, chat D- GPT. It, the person that they interviewed was actually somebody associated with the company, but um, I found it uh, pretty impressive because I remember about a month or two ago, I was listening to some deep fakes of Joe Biden and a, and a few others that were pretty good, but obviously they were, you know, aside from the content, they were just not quite right. And this has come miles, miles ahead of what that was a month ago. And the only thing that gave it away to me as somebody that just listens to audio and things like that uh, would be the pacing, you know, just the starts and stops between sentences and topic changes and the emotional inflection. I think I still think that that's the dead giveaway uh, for these deep fakes, but uh, it's getting pretty amazing listening to this stuff. It's very convincing. Yeah, yeah, it's impressive. I mean, I'm scared. I think yeah. that once you start losing the ability to determine what is real and what is fake, I think that yeah. society ends up going into places that are probably not going to be that good. So I feel like we've mm-hmm. already sort of lost faith in a lot of the institutions that we used to rely on over the last 20 years or so. We seem like we're a little bit more politically divided than I can ever recall us being. So it's a little bit scary to sort of inject these ideas of deep fakes and AI um, you know, if somebody starts applying this stuff to like political st- political races and things like that, like it could get scary pretty quickly. So, and this stuff is moving mm-hmm. fast. Like you're you're saying, like okay, a very, month ago it was fast. bad, now it's like good. It's a little right. scary. So everyone, calm down. Don't trust anybody. Don't believe anything, except for us, because yes, we're the real deal. Exactly. <laughs> I get. I think. Yeah. <laughs> oh, maybe we're AI. I don't know. CS Instant Coffee, zero waste instant coffee that comes in compostable packets, perfect for the trail and home. Each packet makes about 20 ounces of coffee, so you can take one of them on an overnight trip, and it makes two pretty good sized cups of coffee. Bring it in your backpack, find some hot water, and you're good to go. Learn more by going to our show notes or Google CS, that's the letter C and S, Instant Coffee at csinstant.coffee. Hey, this was really cool that the uh, EMS show, we had a ton of new stickers. So basically we have uh, the new traditional logo at four inches, which is phenomenal for a car. We have the smaller, uh, what was it? Three inch sticker for Uh, water bottles. Two inch. You get the small Okay, Two inch ones. Yeah, and these new one-inch ones, which are basically, 
I think they're fall and winter colors, but they're great for, say, the back of your cell phone and other places. So you can get those at Ski Fanatics and, of course, Spinners in Andover, Massachusetts, off Dascom Road. And if anybody out there is interested in promoting your service or business or whatever, just let us know and we can give you some advertising options. Um, we do have a couple coffee donations this week. AR donated 10 coffees and told us that uh, we're still killing it at 100, Mike. So that's awfully nice. Thank you very much. Yes. Brian S. donated five. And then um, Jeff, full strength coffee, uh, donated five as well. And uh, he also gave us uh, congrats on the 100. So thank you very, very, very much, everybody. And uh, it's been a little while, but I just wanted to say thanks to our supporter at Reckless Brewing. Uh, we've been there so, there so many times, and we'll see you there this summer for different events that are coming up for uh, the 48 Peaks and whatnot. So a special thanks to them. We will enjoy the best food, craft beer, and fun just 15 minutes from Franconia Notch, many 4,000 footers, and less than 10 minutes from the Five Corners. All right, so, so recent hikes here. Um, what do you got? Hmm. Anything good? No, just been training. Yeah, last time I was out was uh, good, good rich rock with Nobby, but I have not made it out. Uh, we're hoping to get out Sunday to maybe Monroe, depending on the weather. But we shall see. But uh, yeah, most of my efforts been trying to get up these hills, <laughs> which is going good. I feel pretty good about it. I'm doing like three, three and a half miles uphill with maybe one or two stops just to suck in some air, but otherwise I'm gaining. Have you been out? Uh, well, I went to South Moat before EMS, South and Middle Moat, uh, which was fantastic. Yeah. I mean, that range is just amazing. But um, other than that, I haven't been out. I'm not going to be getting out this weekend. I got a little travel planned. Um, so I think my plan right now is I'm going to look... Sometime soon, I'm going to close out the Belknap. So I got to do like the northern part of that range. So I got to get Gunstock, Belknap, Piper. I don't know. I got like two or three of the middle peaks to get done. And then I'll I'll basically have enough to get the patch. I'll finish all the summits there. So I'm looking forward to doing the Belknaps. I think we're going to have a big melt over the next two weekends. So once I get back at it, it'll be... Uh, pretty good conditions, I think. I'm looking forward to getting back into my trail runners. I'm looking forward to getting back into my um, day hike pack and yeah. lighten things up. So I'm, I'm I'm pretty pumped about that. Yeah, that's pretty cool. We'll talk yeah. about boots and trail runners in a few minutes. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> I think the other thing that's been keeping me busy is my friend Tom landed a permit to go to Yosemite. So we are heading mm. out there in September for like a five or six day trip. We got a a trailhead permit, um, and then we're going to be hiking Half Dome. So I'm going to be going to, I guess, like the main village. We're going to stay there one night. Then we got to figure out a way to get to the trailhead from the main village. And then we got to camp in the wilderness one night. Then we're going to be camping in Little Yosemite Campground, which is below Half Dome. We're going to go up Half Dome one day, and then we're going to hike around that sort of like valley. And, you know, I don't really know what the plan is, but it looks amazing. I've been watching a ton of videos and, you know, I'm going to get, make sure I have my CS coffee for the mornings. I'm going to make sure that I get a new, uh, sleeping bag and I'm, I'm already planning on my packing. I got to decide whether I'm going to take my hammock or whether I'm going to use a tent. So I'm, I'm very busy planning right now. That's exciting. Yeah. yeah. That's really cool, Mike. 
yeah, so we'll have some good content there, and uh, I'll take some videos. But but that's it. So we'll mm-hmm. get some more hiking in, and then Stomp, I think you get notable listeners, hikes. Yeah, we have four this week. So if you want to tag Slasher on your next adventure uh, to be considered for the Slasher Hike of the Week, do so, and uh, we'll try to get you a little plug here. So we have uh, Brady Girl 1, uh, who did some hard pack trails on the Kinsman's. Yes. Oh my goodness. I bumped into, this is a side note here. I bumped into Eric Todd Sweet uh, at a local convenience store and he said that the trails are a nightmare right now, especially with the heat. So be careful out there, people. Um, Next we have real hashtag JB who did an Easter sunrise on Mount Carrigane. Beautiful pictures. Nice, nice job. Brady Girl won again. Did the old classic Franconia Ridge Loop. And then our bud, Jeff, Full Strength Coffee, did Morgan and Percival. So nice job, everybody. We got to get Brady Girl 1. Brady Girl 1? Well, you got to get Brady Girl. So you need to give a listener hike of the week to Brady Girl. So you have to give her. Oh, she's the the winner. Even though she. Yeah. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? (laughs) I got you. I got you. Yeah, I I was a little confused as that is her handle. <laughs> I was like, is this an incomplete sentence? Oh, the one is after her handle. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Brady Girl One. So you have to give it to Brady Girl One. <laughs> oh my God. All right. Is yeah. this gonna be a badump or what? I don't know. You'll you're the editor, so <laughs> it might be. <laughs> Sweet Beginnings Daycare is a New Hampshire state licensed child care provider that offers care for children from six weeks to 12 years with flexibility in before and after school care as well. Sweet Beginnings aims to instill a love for learning by providing a safe and positive experience within a loving and warm environment. Sweet Beginnings believes this is a good foundation to teach children in order to prepare them for their future. For more information, contact Sweet Beginnings at 603-568-4530. Visit them at Sweet Beginnings Daycare on Facebook or email Shandy at shandyelliot at outlook.com. And also we have a plug for Alzheimer's Association. Uh, Tis the season. This is really starting to gear up here. Hike to fight Alzheimer's with 48 Peaks, a fundraising and awareness event for the Alzheimer's Association. Join 450 plus hikers this summer as we hike New Hampshire's 4,000 footers or create your own hiking adventure from a 52 with a view to a Prezi Traverse or climb your favorite mountain. Together, we will paint the mountains purple and raise vital funding to advance the care, support, and research efforts of the Alzheimer's Association. Visit alts.org right slash 48 peaks to learn more. Guest of the week. Very cool. Very cool. Very, very, 
So Mike, I'm uh, really looking forward to hearing this interview with Mike and Tom on this single winter 48. Should be really interesting. Yeah, yeah. I got a chance to sit down with uh, Tom and Mike Maisel to talk about the adventures that they had over this winter. And I think that if anybody's planning, you know, there's a lot of people that actually do this. So I think there's some tips in there around logistics and how Mike went about sort of planning this for Tom. It's pretty interesting. Um, we'll let the segment run and then drop back in. And, uh, you know, I got a little bit more to add, I think, but um, it was awesome to talk to them. All right, so we are here with Tom and Mike. Are you guys ready to do your first podcast? Yes, sir. Excellent, excellent. So uh, for the audience and for listeners here, uh, just a little bit of quick background before I start talking with Tom and Mike. Um, Tom and Mike have recently completed a single season winter 48. Tom is 70, so that's that's impressive to keep rolling. You know, Mike's a young guy, but I'm still impressed with his single season winner 48. Anybody that anybody that can do it is impressive for sure. Um, so we wanted to have both of you on to sort of talk about your story. I know that, you know, you guys have developed a good friendship over the years and that you had a whole sort of army of supporters and people that helped you out to get through this this process. Um, and for the listeners, I think this one's a little bit unique because one of the things I found out about Tom is that most people that will do a single season winter 48, typically they'll come at it from an angle where they've already completed all their 4,000 footers and they have sort of a deeper background on um, list hiking. But I think, Tom, in your case, like, and we'll talk about this in a little bit more detail, but in your case, you this is the first time you completed the 4,000 footer list, right? That's correct. Uh, in the winter, of course. Uh, in early years, I've climbed a handful of them, uh, and I say the early years. I would, I would. It was tough to remember what was on the top of the summit, and I would ask Mike, and I'd say, "Oh yeah, I think I've done this." But it was only a handful, only a handful. From a strategy perspective, it, Mike, it. it's a lot easier for me to get people yep. to agree to do things when they have no idea what they're signing up for. So that that was helpful. Exactly. <laughs> Exactly. So you sort of got him to jump right to the front of the line and just say like, yeah, don't, I'm going to take you on this thing. Don't worry about it. Don't focus on the details too much. I'll take you on that piece. <laughs> exactly. Of it. What's the worst that could happen? And that's exactly what he did, Mike. Uh, I just showed up and put my pack on and he pointed and he said, stop walking. And that's how that went. <laughs> that's impressive. That's impressive. So before we get into a deep dive on the single season, um, Winter 48, Tom, can you give a little bit of background about yourself? Um, so you you originally were like a sort of a big mountaineering expedition person going back to your younger days. So can you talk a little bit about so your background with, with hiking and expeditions? Yeah, the, the early background, I didn't do too much hiking, uh, Mike. Uh, as I got older, I was intrigued with rock climbing and... Um, uh, one of the guide services back then, uh, a local where you guys are, was Charlie Townsend, and he helped me. He uh, taught me how to rock climb, and then after that, we went into uh, ice climbing, which ice climbing, which I absolutely loved. Uh, and then it just led to mountaineering, and I was fortunate enough to be on a few expeditions uh, on McKinley or Denali, as it was given back. Um, had only one summit, but I've been on the mountain itself oh, six or seven times. 
uh, at different altitudes, we'd have to bail. And I had the uh, opportunity to uh, uh, be on Rainier uh, five or six times with two summits. And I just love that type of uh, climbing. Um, and I remember when we would do different hikes with Mike on this quest of 48, 4,000 footers, uh, every time we came to a steep section, my mouth would just drool because I just love that mountaineering stuff. You know, it was a good time. Interesting. I'm curious about uh, Denali or McKinley. When you're on those big expeditions and you've invested a lot of time and presumably money, how does it work when you're, I'm assuming you're in there with like three or four other people or, you know, you've got a, you've got a team of people that you're working with. How does it, how, what's the process for deciding go, no go. And when you bail out, is it, is it told to you by a guide or are you, you working, are you all working together to make that decision back then? Well, uh, um, a, a couple of times I worked with a lead guide. Um, and of course he made all the decisions and subsequent climbs, it was myself and maybe three other people, four other people, uh, all depending. And you want to be careful how many people go because you're talking about a rope team. You're going over glaciers. You want to make sure everyone knows how to rescue someone that falls into a crevasse. So we have a, many training sessions before we even got on the mountain. Um, and after being several times on the mountain, you almost can tell when it's a uh, you wake up in the tent and you say, okay, we're going today, or it's another day in the tent. But keep in mind, there's, uh, back then there was no internet, no cell phones. We did have radios, and it was always several expeditions on the mountain, higher, lower. And we were able to radio different expeditions. You know, how was the route coming up to Hilton Glacier? How was, uh, how was the weather up there? So that was a big determining uh, factor and a, and a big help. Uh, so all the expeditions worked together, and we kind of like knew what, what was going on higher up the mountain. Interesting. And then when you were um, figuring out what gear to use and new products and things like that, like you didn't have the internet to figure anything out. So I'm assuming word of mouth and then looking at like gear guides, how did that all work? It was mostly out of catalogs. It was mostly making phone calls off the phone call in your home. There was no cell phones. Uh, there was no internet back in the times I was on McKinley. A lot was calling the ranger station, you know, two weeks ahead of time. How's the weather going? What's it been like? Everything was word of mouth, calling people who have just come off the mountain. There was no quick answer like you have today. Like the forecast is a good example. We'd have to call people uh, and ask about the weather, what it was like, what it was like the last few days. Uh, so that was a big thing, trying to communicate with anyone you could to find out everything about the mountain. Today, all you have to do is look on mountainforecast.com and you've got your answer in seconds, you know. So that was the big change from back then to now. Interesting. And then you're, you've got like an extended amount of time that you need to commit to being on these, these big expeditions. So how did you manage that with your work and then your home life? How, how do you, how do you free up? Cause I'm curious, cause I don't think I could ever swing that. Well, um, with work, um, I was very fortunate. The work I was in, I would get five, six weeks vacation a year and I would just bunch them together, uh, and, and, and do the expedition because the, uh, an expedition on, on Denali is, it could run between 
the minimum three weeks and the maximum, or you could spend two months. The time we did summit, uh, we had gone up the west side of the mountain and uh, came down the north side, down the Muldrow Glacier, crossed the McKinley River, out to Wonder Lake, uh, and that was a five-week expedition. Wow, that is amazing. And my wife, she was in... Uh, she was my number one supporter. I mean, uh, you know, she loves, she knows I love climbing. Uh, she was happy when the big mountains kind of like, okay, I'm done with that. Uh, but during this quest with Mike, she was the, my big supporter. Go out and exercise. This is good. If you don't get them all done, that's fine. But when we came down to the end with, with the trophy in sight, He'd be the first one to get me out of bed at four in the morning, get dressed and head up north to Mike's, you know. So she, oh, she wanted so she just, was working with. So your wife was working with Mike to, to oh, get yeah. you moving then. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So it was great. I had support uh, uh, all the time from inside the house and outside the house. Got it. And then you, um, as far as like you coming back here and settling down on the big stuff, you, you would do smaller hikes around New Hampshire, and but you weren't you weren't like an avid hiker. It sounds like no, I would do smaller hikes, and and uh, I live about two hours from you guys up north, so I had very little time off uh, in my career. I was gone uh, three weeks out of the month. Uh, as I became senior, I got a lot more days off, but. Um, so the time at home was limited, so I didn't really get to hike much. I'd go up Mount Major, uh, and then when I started, uh, I would go up Mount Washington, you know, 150 times any time I could, you know, and up Pinkham Notch, up Lion's Head, and, and I think we discussed this, that uh, I didn't even know there was a backside of Washington until I met Mike. I actually have a running joke that Tom thought there were only two mountains in all of New Hampshire. That would be Mount Major and Mount Washington. So we've we've expanded his horizons a little bit, Mike. Very good. I'm impressed now. So we got to get him to do the 52 with the view list next. He'll really that'll really blow him away. Hey, he's looking for new suggestions on things to tackle. So send them in. Okay, I like that idea. So, so do we use, Tom, did you stay in shape or um, did you have to, I'm assuming you had to work your way into sort of winter hiking shape for this, this project, right? Well, we all know that every exercise is muscle specific. I've always been active, Mike. Uh, and during the summer, I, I sign up for at least five sprint triathlons, not the big ones. And the reason why I sign up for so many, I want to make sure I stay in shape between them. However, again, muscle-specific, when the tri-season is done and I'll put a pack on and go climb Mount Major, I'm in pain. You know, it's just, it's just a different thing. And Mike was so strategic. He would, he would start off with the, what he calls easy, and as I got my legs into shape, it worked out pretty well at the end. So you had to fully trust him that when he said, like, I'm going to start off easy, you're not giving any input. You're just going along with it. Oh, you would say, um, exactly, exactly, Mike. We're going to do this, Tom, this, Tom. And a lot of times he put a comma with there, and I don't want any back talk. <laughs> Tom, Tom's <laughs> input was more uh, in, along the lines of how he was feeling. You know, I'd ask him a lot of questions about what your energy level's at. I, I don't ask people, like, how are you doing, and let them tell me I'm doing fine. I usually ask them, like my question to Tom is, uh, pretend that you're the uh, battery meter on your cell phone. Tell me what percentage you're running at. 
And that's what I use to get a much more specific answer out of people. So, yeah, that's good. That's good. And Mike, you're, so you're, you are a professional guide. So can you give a little bit of background on your sort of the work that you do and your, your background in hiking and your connection in New Hampshire? Sure. Uh, I work for Redline Guiding out of Intervale, which is a little hamlet just north of North Conway. Um, I have worked for Redline for three or four years, I believe, at this point. Um, I grew up in New Hampshire. I, I was born in Cape Cod, but my family moved up to the Lake Winnipesaukee area when I was about five years old. So I, I definitely consider myself a New Hampshire kid. Um, played mostly traditional sports for most of my life. I played baseball, basketball, soccer in high school. And then that sort of tradition uh, transitioned into rec sports, rec sports leagues, indoor soccer, um, softball leagues with my friends, stuff like that. And then uh, in my 30s, I, I started to hike a little bit more, but it was mostly just a, a fringe thing that I did once in a while on the weekends. wasn't like, you know, I have so many friends now that went for a hike one day and they got they got bit by this hiking bug. And the next thing you know, they had knocked out their 4,000 footers in like three weeks. That wasn't me. Um, took me, I think, five years to knock out my 4,000 footers. I think I gave myself another like three or four to do the New England 67. And I just kept sort of branching out further and further. Um, in my career, I worked for a, a large, very large insurance company. So it wasn't exactly the uh, the most most interest or let's say wasn't the most exciting job in the world put it that way um yep. and eventually hiking became a bigger and bigger part of my life and I, I was able to uh sort of downshift my career and took a shot and asked mr Cherum if he'd give me a chance to be a guide and and thankfully he was gracious enough to uh to say yes and take me on as an intern and kind of allow me to learn on the job so i've been been learning a lot ever since here we are Great. And then as far as um, you know, working as a guide, you get to know a lot of people and your network um, is probably pretty big, which I think helped with this particular project. But can you sort of talk about, I guess, from your perspective, sort of the changes that you've seen over the years since you've been working as a guide? Like has, have things changed? Have people become more knowledgeable? What is your perspective on the culture of the whites? Yeah. I mean, I can use myself as a pretty good example. Um I think when I started hiking, the Facebook groups weren't a huge thing yet. You know, there, there wasn't a lot of readily available information out there. Um, there was like a, uh, a forum called Views from the Top that had some good information, but you had to be able to find that first, you know. Um, and one thing that I think a lot of people get into trouble with is like in the theory of unknowns, you have things that are known unknowns, like the weather. That's a variable that you know you have to account for it, but you're not always sure what it's going to be. I think when when bad things happen, a lot of times it's the unknown unknowns, and those are the things that you weren't even aware that you needed to know about in the first place. Um, so for me, it wasn't like I was a, a Boy Scout or an Eagle Scout or anything like that. Um, I, I did a lot of stuff wrong at first, and that's how I learned. And I was just fortunate that through that process, you know, I was able to to survive those mistakes and, and fix it the next time. And, and not everybody's that lucky, but, um, there's a lot of great resources. Now the Facebook groups are huge. There's the hiking buddies. There's, there's just so many, so much information out there to, to help. And even, even with that, we still, we still need to do a better job of making sure that everybody's aware of, of the things that they need to be to stay safe out there. 
Yeah, yeah. I, I talk about this a lot on the show, too, around like developing that voice inside your head that tells you it's time to turn around and you're you know, you're not in a dangerous zone right now, but you could be. So turn around. But the hard part about developing that instinct is that until you're exposed to a couple of challenging situations, like you don't always get that, that's that knowledge developed clearly. And I think people just sort of walk past that line sometimes and get themselves in trouble. Well, they say, um, good judgment comes from experience and experience comes from bad judgment. So that's right. So that's a, uh, that's a tough, that's a tough muscle to flex. Uh, tough muscle to build. And one of the things that I, I like to talk to people about is really decision points. You know, when you leave your house in the morning, that's a decision point. Hopefully you check the weather the last time, you know, when you get out of your car at the trailhead, whether or not you decide to step on that trail is a decision point. When you break out a tree line, that's a decision point. Um, that risk assessment, you know, that should be an ongoing process. That's, that's not just, hey, we decided we're going to go for a hike and that's it. We keep going. It's every time you get to one of those spots, am I going to cross this river? Is this safe to do this? Like you really should be having that conversation with, with yourself in your head. And every time there's new information, you need to take that into account. And that should go into your process for whether you continue or whether you adjust your plan and, and head back. Interesting. And do you cover that pretty actively with your clients when you're on, when you're guiding? Yeah, I try to. Um a lot of people come to us for different reasons. You know, we, we wear a lot of hats. Mm-hmm. Some, for some people, uh, you know, you're like their strength coach and you're getting them all amped up to do the big thing and just trying to get them out of their own head. Um, for other people, you're just a companion. You know, they know what they're doing. They just, they don't want to do it alone. Um, you're a teacher sometimes. Uh, there's there's just so many hats. But um, on a typical like day hike, when it's not crazy conditions and you can hear each other talking and stuff, you know, everything that we do, we're trying to give people a full experience. So we're teaching them a little bit of leave no trace. We're teaching them about the weather. We're giving them some history, you know, um, try to, uh, try to definitely hit as many, as many areas as we can. So that when that person, even if they don't come out with red line again, we've given them, you know, a lot of tools that they can use moving forward in their own, in their own adventures to stay safe and have a good time. Awesome. Yeah. And I, uh, I always think about like, a matter of fact, I've never hiked um, up Lion's Head in the winter. And I, every once in a while, I sort of think like, I would be interesting to just go with a guide and, and sort of talk about that experience. So you may get a phone call from me next year. Tom, Tom and I will take you up. We can do a uh, follow up interview on the side. <laughs> Yeah, we'll do that. We'll do that because I um, I know Tom didn't know that this this existed, but I usually go up in the winter up Amanusik, so I've never um, never played on the Pinkham Notch side of the the Mount Washington in the winter. So we'll see. It's amazing. It's an amazing spot. Great. And then um, as far as how you went went about meeting this fellow right here. So for the audience, you can't see visually, but like there's a there's a there's an age difference here. You know, what is it like 25, 30 years? So it's not obvious that although I will say the older I've gotten, the more common it is for me to have friends and, you know, the older age or even younger friends. So like age really doesn't matter as much. I think the older you get. But can you might give a little bit of background about how you and Tom? Sure. Met? Um, it was actually, I think it was my dad's birthday. It was December 18th, um, probably like four or five years ago. And I was spending the day with my father, but, um, I wanted to get up and stretch the legs real quick. So I, I went over to Mount Major after breakfast and I took my usual route, which I believe is the, uh, orange or the boulder, the boulder loop. And there was this handsome gentleman up at the summit 
And he asked me if I would take his picture. I'd later find out that's kind of his thing. He's sort of a diva. He has to have his picture taken 24 seven. Um, but I said, I'll take your picture, but you need to tell me about your pack. And, um, he had on this, this pack that was clearly from another era. It was like faded purple, orangish, you know, colors, colors that, that my generation doesn't really use anymore. And he was like, Oh, what's up with my pack? And I said, well, you know, where I come from, like we don't trust people with new gear. So based on the way that pack looks like you're either some sort of homeless guy that lives out here. You, you and that bag have seen some shit over the years. And, um, we ended up talking back and forth. He said, Oh, Mike, that, that pack's been up McKinley a couple of times. I was like, really? And then he asked me about the trail that I had come up. Um, and Tom usually came up the other side and he asked if I, if I'd mind, if he joined me on the way down, I said, no, absolutely not. Um, so one thing I enjoy about going out alone once in a while is it makes me more open to the universe and the opportunities that are around me. Um, you know, so if I was with a friend that day or if, if Tom had Debbie with him or somebody else, you know, not that we wouldn't have had a nice conversation, but that might have been the end of it. The fact that the two of us were by ourselves that day um, just makes you a little bit more open to the possibilities of, hey, this guy wants to hang out, then we'll have a good conversation. And, you know, as you said, Tom's obviously, what, three three decades older than me. So at face value, we, you know, have, we, we don't, you wouldn't think that we would have so many things in common. But the more that we talked, um, we did have a lot of things in common. We both got married later in life, respective to our peers. Um, you know, we, both of us, we, we don't have children. We both love the mountains. We had, we had both recent, recently uh, retired, Tom in like a traditional way and me in a little bit more, uh, untraditional early retirement kind of sense so we just had a really great conversation on the way down um we exchanged numbers down in the parking lot and this guy's been following me around ever since mike i can't get rid of him <laughs> interesting so tom were you were you like yeah this guy's never going to contact me again he doesn't want to hang out with an old guy like me or what What was your perspective on meeting him you know i actually lost i didn't lose it i wrote his number down but i couldn't remember his last name and then I finally put it together and I called him and, and, and Mike said, geez, I'm so happy you called me. I didn't know if we exchanged the right names and numbers. So we were both thrilled about that. And uh, we started hiking a little bit. And uh, thank you, Mike, for reminding me that I'm three decades older than you. That was very nice of you. Uh, <laughs> but I will tell you, uh, climbing with Mike has uh, made me, make, made me feel, makes me feel a lot younger. Uh, I feel 25 of them around Mike. You know, we would banter back and forth and uh, as if I was 25. And it, now and then, one step in front of the eye, your mind wanders. I'm thinking to myself, why is this 41-year-old like hiking with a 70-year-old? But uh, as you as you say, uh, uh, Mike, uh, MC, um, as you get older, the age difference really doesn't matter. And... Uh, I, Mike and I talk to each other and, and there's no, you can tell the conversation. There's no, there's no, there's no gap in the, in the age uh, difference when we talk to each other. And how many years went by before um, you guys cooked up this, this single season winter 48 plan? Well, we've always been in China, like, like, I, was it three years ago, Mike, we met? I, I can't remember, three or four years. Or, um Mike and his wife, Katie, had visited us at uh, our home here in Milton, New Hampshire. And uh, 
we were sitting on the deck. We live on a very tiny lake in a very, very small, modest home. Um, I had told them that uh, I was turning 70 in November, and Mike suggested, why don't we try the uh, 48s over 70? And he showed me with the patch with the old man in the walker going up the side. I said, Mike, that's a lot. I said, I I wouldn't mind trying it. I'll do the best as many as I can, but I don't know if I'll be able to achieve all of them. Um, And that's how it all happened. So uh, he said, okay, let's try it. So, and your one, wife was all in on it too. She was, she she said, "Go for it." Oh, she said, "Go for it." My yeah. my wife is a nurse practitioner, so her main thing is stay stay healthy, keep exercising, exercising, and uh, and she always makes sure I eat, I eat right. Uh, however, that being said, I could come in the house, the refrigerator is chock full, and there's nothing to eat. So that's how healthy she makes me eat. <laughs> Well, I guess it, it it got you past the finish line, so it works. And you know, and 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 you know what I mean. I mean, there's no there's no calories in the refrigerator. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's like well, I guess it worked. There's right? like four different kinds yeah. of spring mix in our, in my fridge right now. <laughs> yeah, and I remember I lose some weight for the Mount Washington Road Race, so I feel both of you guys right now. And, and I'll tell you, Mike, uh, I remember spending a couple nights at Mike, and he was so gracious having me over all the time. And I remember Katie asking, what would you like to drink? I said, do you have Diet Pepsi? It's like both of them went, oh, oh my God. Uh, like, I thought I did something horrible, Mike. I, I guess that's not allowed in their house, you know? So, so every time I go up their house overnight, okay, that's on my checklist. It's back of Diet Pepsi. Yeah, bring a bring a stash for yourself. I'd like to apologize on behalf of my family. Apparently, I owe Tom an apology that we don't drink Diet Pepsi for breakfast here at the Maceal household. <laughs> That's right. I remember one morning Mike had made me oatmeal. He says, well, "What do you want to drink?" I said, "Well, there's a Diet Pepsi in there, isn't it?" You couldn't go over the fact that I have Diet Pepsi with oatmeal, so I don't know. It works for me, Mike. Well, he paid you with Diet Pepsi and got you to sign off on this plan. So it's November, it's your birthday. And then, you know, us hikers have this weird, like, okay, we got to, you know, start the day of, you know, the first day of winter at a certain time and then finish by a certain time on the last day of winter. So uh, before you started the the first hike and you were looking at this project, it, and I know that you had an incident at your house, but was there any other trepidation or you know, were you always, you were just down for it after, after committing, right? Oh, once, yeah, once we started, I was committed. I mean, I have a part-time job now that I'm, uh, I give them one week a month. I even told them, take me off the schedule for the next three months. And that helped, but there was no, there was no hesitation. Once we started walking, I was in for it. Got it. And then right before you were going to, um, you were going to start, you had an issue with your house, right? Yeah, I guess two days before Christmas, we had a very, very bad windstorm. And I'm guessing we had a microburst that had come up from the uh, south side. And it take it had taken out a 200-foot pine tree that split the roof in half. So, uh, And we live in a very modest home. So when I say upstairs, it's just a small bedroom. And it just about broke the roof in half. And... Uh, so construction actually just started a few days ago. So, but the last few months, my wife and I have been living downstairs in cramped quarters and living the life of bag- vagabonds. 
it's worst time of the year too for it, right? Because they, I'm assuming they must have sealed the this the roof up at least so you could live in the house, right? Well, that was an important point, Mike, because I thought the season was over. I said, "Oh, Mike, this is what happened. I, this ain't going to happen." However, the contractor they came over and sealed the house up for the winter, and he says, "Tom, there's no way I'm working on this roof." In the winter months, we're going to wait till the weather breaks. And my wife said, well, Tom, there you go. There's no reason for you not to hike. You can't do anything. The house is secure for the winter. So she said, get your pack on and get up north. Well, it probably worked out well for her, too, because you're getting out of the, you're getting out of a cramped quarter as well. So, Oh, my, oh yeah. This part-time job I have, Mike. My wife gets so excited when I come home after being away for a week, and she gets yep. so excited when she sees me back again. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. I know when, when I started working remote because of COVID, like for the first week or two, it was great, and then I quickly wore my welcome out. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> That's the way it goes. All right. So logistically, I don't know which one, who, who wants to comment on this, but like you, what was the first like couple of hikes? Like how do you, so you got to start slow. You got to get your, your hiking legs going. Cause you're not doing a ton of 4,000 footers. So what, what are like the first three or four hikes? Do you have those listed? Yeah. Like? So what we had planned out as Tom started to get more excited about it, he cooked up this plan where we were going to uh, go up and stay at the Highland center for a couple of days and try and get ourselves off to a real good start. So we knew that mm-hmm. winter began at like, I think like 447 on December 21st. So that day was kind of shot. You know, we're not going to go out there at night at that point. Um, so Thursday, we plan to do Tom Field and Willie. And then we're going to stay at the Highland Center that night. And Friday, we we're going to go back out and do Pierce and Eisenhower and maybe Jackson, depending on how, how things went. Um, so we were able to do Tom Field and Willie, and then that's when the storm was rolling in. So before we even knew that you know Tom's house was going to get hit or everything else, um, we cut that trip short right off the bat because of the storm the following day. And um, you know, obviously, we we just talked about how that went. So we had the holidays, and then we came back for the Hancocks on Thursday, December 29th, and it was just Tom and I. And the Hancocks are steep, so I told him to bring his ice axe because he, he, you know, that's his tool of choice. So, you know, he he likes having that. That makes him feel comfortable. Um, we put him into mountaineering mode, which usually puts him in a pretty good mood. And Tom brought a new pair of hiking boots that time. We had a different pair of uh, boots that he wanted to try out. And I don't know if you remember, Mike, but the Hancocks in the beginning of the winter season were, like, horrifically bad for trail conditions. Um yeah that day kicked the crap out of me and poor tom like the boots and his feet um i just remember we got to the top of of north and he's like i gotta i gotta do something about my feet and i have a a joke that you know if tom's feet were a car they'd be an old jalopy filled with like bondo and duct tape and everything else um (laughs) and usually when i look at my friend like tom's just my friend you know he's a badass he's the old mountaineer he does all this stuff um, that day, like he, that was one of the, the first times I ever looked at him and been like, wow, like he's 70 years old. Like, I don't know if I can do this to him. Cause that day just absolutely kicked the crap out of him. Um, so, yeah. so that was a tough day for both of us, but we, we did survive. You it. know, what's tricky too, is the Hancocks is typically 
you know, obviously like going up the North, North Hancocks is, is always a brutal hike, but generally that's a nice starter hike. Cause you go in for what, four miles or so. It's pretty flat. Yep. You just go up three quarters of a mile and then yep. you're, you butt slide down the south. And between the, the rain, the snow, the ice and people uh, bare booting it, it had turned into that weird kind of curved trench where you just, the mm-hmm. whole day, your ankles just flexing and flat. I mean, like I said, it, it beat the crap out of me too. Um, so that was a tough day. May I add something here, Mike? Sure. Um, after the uh, Hancocks, you know, my feet were a mess, blisters, stupid move by wearing uh, brand new boots. But when we drove off in our separate ways, I was so determined. I said, this is crazy. I went right to REI and I want and I tried on seven different pairs of hiking boots. And I wanted to do it then while my feet were swollen from the day climbing. And it took me, I was there for two hours. It took me seven pairs to come across a pair of boots that I just love. And that from that point on, that made the season. That made the season. But I was determined. I could have gone home and said, you know, this isn't for me. And I said, nope, I need to fix something on my feet. So uh, uh, I was determined. Got a new pair of hiking boots. And they're comfortable all winter long. Yeah, that's a game changer. Yeah, once you find a brand that works for you, don't ever change. Right, but I, I had a tough time transitioning from a mountaineer boot to a hiking boot because all my experience in the winter uh, was using mountaineering boots, and I had some old Koflak boots, old plastic boots that were great, but I knew I had to upgrade to a, a better mountaineering boot. But your feet change over the years. You know, I went from a narrow foot to a wide foot. Uh, so I, it finally hit me that, you know, mountaineering boots just don't like you anymore. So I went to a hiking boot and uh, that made the difference. Wow. So first week is tough. Mike, what did you, did you guys take any breaks after that? Or were you like, let's, let's keep going? Or how did it work as you got into January? One of our strategies right off the bat was that we we're going to try and make it as easy as him on possible, uh, as easy on him as possible in terms of the trail conditions, and knowing that he and I both have a lot of flexibility in our schedules. To start with, we set off like we set aside like Mondays and Tuesdays because we figured everybody would be out on the weekends. The trail conditions would be nice and clean for us as long as the weather played along. Um, so the start was kind of we'll do Monday, Tuesdays, Monday, Tuesdays. Um, we took the time off for the holidays after the Hancocks. I think we took, what, Tommy, maybe like almost another week off for like uh, New Year's. We didn't get back out until Wednesday the 4th. And we did um, Tecumseh, you know, pretty straightforward hike. And then the week after that, we had what ended up being our first back-to-back because of the, the cancellation earlier on. But we did um, on Monday, January 9th, we did Franconia Ridge with our friend Elliot and Neil. And that was a absolutely amazing day it was a all day undercast like just an absolute time we had a great great time and then ran it back the very next day tom and i went out and did eisenhower pierce and jackson and just again like those two days back to back were unbelievable like incredible beautiful weather i think we ended up sitting on tom were we on top of eisenhower for maybe like 20 minutes 30 minutes didn't even have any coats on like that's how nice it was that day no wind, oh, sun was shining. It was gorgeous, gorgeous. And Tom was, Tom was cruising that day. So like when we got when we got down from Eisenhower, Pierce, and Jackson, I was like, you know what, buddy, if you can give me 
that effort and that speed, like, you know, in those conditions, we can do this. Like, you know, we, we can get some of these longer hikes done and I, I have confidence that we can knock this out. Awesome. And then Tom, slowly, like you guys started interjecting, like other people joining you on these hikes, you were wearing the Hawaiian shirts. I know Mike was getting some of the word out on social media, which I think probably is a good, I think from what I'm reading into this and Tom, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but like, you've got a, like a, a mental toughness around understanding, you know, I'm guessing you probably have a high tolerance for discomfort based on your background in mountaineering and whatnot, but um, it sounds like everything is kind of setting up where, uh, you know, you're putting the pressure on yourself, plus you want to like, you know, you want to do this for Mike and your wife. And it sounds like you collected a whole bunch of either old friends or new friends along the way. So can you talk a little bit about how new people started getting interjected into these different hikes that you guys were doing? Because it wasn't just you two. No, I'll, 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 I'll tell you. At first, it was Mike and I going out and a good friend of mine right back here uh, at home, Elliot. We would go out, the three of us, and Elliot wouldn't be on a lot of them based on his schedule. But it'd be Mike and I, and then two weeks later, it'd be another person, and then later in the week, it'd be two more people. It, it's almost like by the end of the year, I felt like Horace Gump. Remember when he started running, and he'd pick up a couple people, pick up a couple people? And it was awesome. And I remember on Kerrigan on the finale, and I wore I wore a Hawaiian shirt once on Kinsman, and Mike said, "Hey, that looks pretty good," you know. So Mike started to wear one, and I remember on the finale uh, going up Carrigan, I had just turned a switchback, and I was leading the pack. Everyone wanted to make sure I was out front, and I remember looking down on the folks that had not made the switchback yet, and I'm looking at a string of Hawaiian shirts. And I just thought that was so cool. I just thought that was so cool. And there were uh, so many people came out to support this quest. And Mike is a genius with uh, the media. I mean, he's got a journal. Uh, uh, he writes phenomenally. What's your degree, Mike, in journalism? He's got a degree in journalism. And the way he writes, he just invites people that just can't wait to join us when we do this. So... I, I think his uh, media gift and his way of getting, he has a knack for getting a crew together. And by the end of the season, uh, you know, it'll be my privilege if these folks allow me to call them my friend. Wow. And then when you're injecting new people into the hike, I'm assuming that there's some basic rules and I don't know, you know, both of you can comment on this, but like basic expectations around like, Hey, we're all going to stick together. We're all going to focus on, you know, going the same pace as Tom or whoever happens to be uh, the slowest hiker or whatever. Can, can you talk a little bit about like, did you have any problems with that or was it always pretty easy to just sort of set the ground rules? I call it, I call it the Tom contract, Mike. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so when I, when I get somebody to, uh, so we'd be like, yeah, yeah, I want to join you guys. We'd like, you know, tell them when we're going out, I'd be like, all right, you have to agree to the following contract. <laughs> the old mountaineer hikes at 1.5 miles per hour. <laughs> okay. The old mountaineer sometimes tells, uh, tells jokes that are corny and old and uh he'll be chewing on a cigar and all this other stuff but um for the most part you know it wasn't a concern for people to keep up um as you know safety is usually at the forefront of everything that i do like i'm a big safety guy like to take care of the group stuff like that it got a little bit a little bit trickier towards the end where it was some harder hikes and more people wanted to be involved um 
So I had to have a couple of conversations where I was basically just asking my friends to like self-select. You know, if you don't think that you can do this day, please don't be the reason that we have to turn around. Or in a couple of cases, I was like, hey, like if it was someone who's probably like a little bit more external or more on the fringe of my friend group, I'd be like, hey, here's the deal. You're more than welcome to come. We're happy to have you there. But just so you know, like my oh, priority boy. is Tom. I get like, I'm going to get him to the summit. That's what I'm going to be focused on. Like I, I just can't be like trying to help other people come up. What we had is as people would agree to come on, I would kind of jokingly send them out a contract called the Tom contract and be like, all right, well, if you're going to join us, you have to agree to the following terms. Um, you know, Tom's 70 years old. You need to understand that he hikes at 1.5 miles per hour <laughs> pretty consistently. Um, he's probably going to be a goofball telling corny dad jokes. And that's just part of the, part of the allure. He may or may not be chomping on a cigar, but you know, this is what we do here. Um, and so as we, as we progressed and more and more people joined, you know, there were some people reaching out from, from the internet and from the Facebook groups that just say, Hey, like, I'd really like to be a part of this. And if it's not someone that I, I knew really well, like there were some conversations that little bit dicier, you know, or a little bit trickier where, it's like, hey, just so you know, like, you're welcome to join, but my priority is going to be taking Tom to the summit. Like, you know, I, please, uh, you know, self-select. If you don't think this is a hike that you can handle, you know, I, I wouldn't want to turn around because of someone else who wanted to be a part of it. Um, unfortunately, when you're when you're trying to do hard things and you're on time-sensitive goals and stuff like that, at a certain point, you do have to be selfish. So I'd say, hey, I'm, I'm being selfish for Tom and I'm being selfish on behalf of his, his goal here. Um, and everybody, I think everybody understood that for the most part. So we ended up with, with a really good cast of characters, as you usually find out in the mountains. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, everyone was everyone was great, uh, Mike. And and to that point about uh, being on the trail, Mike quickly learned that I liked to be in the back. And I actually liked, liked it when Mike and whoever was with us was out of sight. I'm able to get into a zone uh, internally. Or I, I have my own little rest, rest step pace that has helped me throughout my career in hiking. Uh, and that helped a lot. A lot of times, Mike and the noise would be disappear. But Mike always knew where I was. He knew what my pace was. And he knew how I liked to climb. So I yeah, I don't think it was a problem. Was it, Mike, with the other folks most of the time? No, you're incredible. You're incredible. Um, Tom, like... Everyone, if you take nothing else away from Tom's story and longevity and everything else, like I was joking all along that I was paying attention and taking notes and Tom, nobody's going to sign on to not drink and not eat cheese and not eat burgers and red meat and all that stuff. So maybe hiking into our seventies isn't for all of us, but the one thing that Tom does that everybody should learn is the mountaineering rest step. And that is just an unbelievable savor of energy that basically some days turned him into like the true story of like the tortoise and the hare, where he would just be doing his rest step, taking his breath, taking his breaths, saving his energy. And we'd be going up ammo. For example, Tom passed, I don't know, 15, 20 people that were 30 years younger than him that had left 15 to 20 minutes earlier than us all because of the rest step and conserving energy. Can you explain exactly what a rest step is? So it's a, it's a mountaineering step where you're basically using your musculo, uh, your skeletal structure to take the pressure off of your muscles and you combine it with really focusing on your breathing. So um, if you ever think about the concept of like micro wins, like a, a top-notch athlete, if 
if Michael Jordan can find some way to save just a little bit of energy that someone else isn't, maybe at the end of the game, that's enough energy for him to have the game winning shot or something like that. So all this is is a micro win where you take a step, you have your body situated in a way that it's taking some of the strain off of your muscle. It gives you a mini break and then you focus your breathing at the same time. So it's more, it's more methodical than you, if you see someone who's athletic, just running up a mountain, that's going to burn, that's going to burn their muscles out eventually. Um, and Tom, Tom's just the master at it. He gets in his rhythm and he gets his breathing going and he can just, like I said, he doesn't go much faster than a mile and a half, but he can do that consistently no matter how steep it is, no matter where we are, what the weather is. Thank you, Mike. Interesting. And I've talked about this before, but I've sort of, I've done the Mount Washington road race a bunch of times and I've noticed like the people that tend to do sort of these longer loping running strides are not as successful and they tend to sort of do the walk run routine versus the people that are most successful and can keep running are the they're very slow but they're almost it's it's basically like very short steps with a much higher cadence mm-hmm. is what i see so it sounds like this mountaineering step might be something similar but at a slower pace it sounds like maybe a good way to explain it so so people might be familiar with something else that's similar is uh, the televator on a snowshoe you know oh, okay. it's giving you a minor mechanical advantage and taking a lot of the pressure off of your muscles in the process. And I think we all know how that adds up at the end of a, at the end of a day. So Tom, you got a secret. If I might add just one thing, Mike, on, on my particular rest step, um, people who, who get it right, they have their own little way of doing it that conserves energy in a certain part of the body. Uh, For example, when I bring the foot from the back to the front, I actually have no weight on it while it's sitting on the ground in the front and all my weights on the back foot. I am resting my one, the front foot for two seconds, three seconds, and then I bring the other one up and rest the, that one, front one. I mean, if you, in my opinion, if you do that over a period of, you know, eight, nine, ten hours, you've saved a lot of energy. And another thing I do, and, and Mike, uh, Mike will uh, know this, I never, I have adjustable ski poles, and I never have them uh, where you have to bring it up 90 degrees, then put them forward, because I always have them like walking sticks low. Okay. Because I figured from, from that 45-degree angle to 90, if I, if, I have to, if I can eliminate that movement several thousand times a day, that's energy saved. All right. So you're keeping, even with your, with your hiking poles, you're keeping your arms lower down below your, yes. your hips. Yes, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So it's like just these little little adjustments over time is what's saving you a lot of energy. And other people who are familiar with the rest step, they may do something different, but it's it's all rhythm like my said like Mike said. And I always listen to my heartbeat. You know, when I feel it's going, you know, a little bit faster than normal, then I'll slow the rest step down. It's uh it's it's you're always paying attention to your body while you're you're doing the rest step. And that's helped me tremendously. Hiking and mountaineering are such a repetitive process where if you can find a way just to do something that tiny bit more efficient, the, you know, what you get out of it over the course of 30, 40, 50,000 steps is incredible. Yeah, it's really interesting. So I'm going to do a little bit more research on this. Um, But just changing topics for a second, and maybe Mike, this may be a question for you is, 
logistically as you started to progress along the list like and I've been dealing with this this winter too because I've kind of kicked some of the harder hikes because I'm I'm like at 42 out of 48 I'm, I'm I got two more hikes left for next winter but I kicked a lot of the logistically tricky hikes to this this winter I've really started like three three years ago but I had to do the twins and Gilhead. I had to do the Carters. Um, so, c- can you talk a little bit about the logistically tricky ones and how you went about um, planning for those? Yeah, once we, you know, that first month, we ended up doing seven hikes and fourteen peaks, and that really got him. It got his legs going again. The second month, which I know you had mentioned, Mike, like you noticed at a certain point, like it didn't seem like we were going to get it done. Mm-hmm because of a bunch of different stuff. But the second month we only, we didn't get a whole lot done. Um, so what happened was at the end, we had 29 peaks left with a little bit over a month to go. And because of the way we had started, we didn't have any cupcakes left either. Right. So, um, you got a couple of different things. You have multi, multi peaks that are hard because they're long. So, you know, Tom's not, uh, Tom's not Josh Brooks. Tom just can't go rip a uh, single day Prezi with Josh and Gwen or do a Pemi and catch up or something like that. Right. So we know right off the bat, the best we're probably going to get is like a, a, you know, three days or sorry, three peaks, three peaks in a day. Um, some stuff isn't really logistically hard. It's just hard. Like the Carters are a pain in the butt, no matter what. Um, so for that, it's like bring the right team, have the right people in place. We ended up breaking a lot of trail that day, but we were able to put Tom in the back of the group so that by the time he got to where he was going, he had a pretty, you know, pretty nice sidewalk to work with that day. Um, the twins and Galehead were a huge day for us because he felt strong enough at that point to add Galehead on, which gained us back a day which was a huge, you know, once you start falling behind, anytime you can gain back a day, that's enormous. So when Tom added, added Gail head onto the twins, that was huge. Um, again, we had a small team, but we knew the conditions were right that day. And some days I would, to motivate him, I'd say like, Hey buddy, if you can just give me like a really good effort the next two days, I can give you three days off. Or, you know, if you can give me this, then, you know, it's going to make this so much easier. And having him know that made a big difference. Um, the day that we did Monroe and Washington, same thing. We went into that day thinking if he was having a good day, we had the right team. I mean, we, we brought the, uh, we brought the all-stars out for that one. And on Washington, you know, nobody was having more fun out in the Prezies than we were that day. Everyone's wearing Hawaiian shirts. People are asking us if, if we're on a bachelor party, which, you know, we had Stacy, we had Stacy with us. So she's like, Hey, what about me? <laughs> um, but on the summit of Washington, you know, we'd had this conversation all week, like, all right, Tommy, if you're feeling it, we're going to go for Jefferson and try and steal back another day. And I asked him if he was up for it. And he looked at me like I had three heads, like, what do you mean? Of course, we're going to Jefferson. Um, And we stole back another day. So um, stuff like that, you know, when you get towards the end, you no longer have that, oh, we can go do whatever we want stuff, because you got to be more strategic. Um, the mountain goddess, the mountain goddess tossed us an absolute softball that weekend with beautiful weather back to back. And the conversation that Tom and I had was, Hey man, if you can give me these two days, we only have a week left. I don't know if we're going to get the weather to get back above treeline again. So if we don't take this opportunity right now, then, you know, the weather might be what shuts us out of finishing the project. 
we still had Alice had isolation in Kerrigan, but I'm a lot more comfortable with whatever. We'll just find a crew to, to help us get this done in the woods, whether we have to break trail or not. Then, hey, Tom, we're going to go up Adams today when it's blowing 75. Don't worry about it. Everything's going to be fine. Yeah. Um, so that weekend was clutch. Yeah. And Tom, how were you recovering on, if you were compressing hikes together within like a couple of days or a day, you know, you had to go back to back, how were you recovering? Um, or how well were first, you recovering? Yeah, the first month, I mean, I was tired and I was glad we weren't climbing the very next day. But I would say the last three, three weeks of the endeavor, uh, I was strong. Like, for example, uh, Mike just talked about Monroe and Washington and uh, Jefferson. And the next morning is the second day it asked me to, uh, to put out an effort because we need to get strategically, we need to get out of Madison. Um, my legs were, the, the legs were not an issue. My legs were strong. But I remember that second day, I was just plain exhausted from the day earlier. Um, but I knew we needed it. So, I mean, my first step on the, uh, when we started the hike to Adams, the first step I was exhausted. But I just put one foot in front of the other. And uh, when we broke tree line, uh, Mike had pointed to where Adams was. It looked like it was 105 miles away. And I, I just, I did not know if I could do it. And I just, I just leaned over my poles and thought about all the people who had helped us out up to this point. And I didn't want to disappoint anyone uh, who was rooting for Mike and I. So I just dug down deep and put one foot in front of the other. Never looked up until, until uh, figuratively, Mike said, okay, Tom, we're at the summit. You can look up now. <laughs> and uh, and after that, the energy came back. We came back and we did Madison and then uh, out the Jewel Trail. And I knew we only had three more peaks, right, Mike, after that? Yeah, that was 45. Yeah, and uh, long single days. And, uh, and then uh, uh, we had three days off with the snowstorm. And then uh, Thursday... This is the this is the good thing for me that I had never been to most of these peaks before, so I did not know how long isolation was until I got on the trail. So okay, I never I've never seen this peak before. I'll just do my thing. We got out to isolation and back, and the very next day we were going to do we did Owl's Head, and okay, and once again I've never seen Owl's Head. So I just followed the trail. Had I known, had I been out to isolation before and Al said before, and I knew in my mind what long days they were, I think I would have been more tired than I really was. But uh, but I might have got off script a little bit there, Mike. Excuse me. <clears throat> no, that's fine. But the last uh, the last two, three weeks of the endeavor, my, my legs always felt strong. Uh, so... It was, I was looking for, with the, with the, the end in sight, and you saw the, the light at the end of the, the tunnel. Oh, yeah, I was ready. Tom stayed, uh, Tom started to stay over a little bit more towards the end, so we wouldn't have to do the drive back and forth. So that, that saved him some energy. And just yeah. two things that I wanted to add. Um, spaghetti really needs to get 
it's due here because everything turned around when Tom decided he could eat spaghetti at any point in the day, no matter what. He started eating spaghetti for breakfast. He started eating spaghetti for lunch. We got him spaghetti after the hikes. So spaghetti is really one of the unsung heroes of this whole adventure. And then that day on Adams and Madison. So if you think about it, Tom's 70 years old. In a span of 36 hours, he stepped on the five highest summits in all of the Northeast, which I guess you could say he was the oldest person on top of the Northeast five different times. But when you, you know, you had asked about friendship at one point, Mike, um, there were people that I consider pretty good friends that I worked with for, you know, 10, 12 years. And our friendship never got beyond the, what'd you do with the kids this weekend? What'd you have for dinner last night? Which there's absolutely nothing wrong with that. Um, but you do find a lot of friendships like that in, in everyday life. Um, the friendships that you make in the mountains just take you to a different place and you form different bonds there. And to see what he did that day on Adams and Madison, when I knew that he was tired, you know, not everybody has that gear inside of them where they can just go to that dark place and put their head down and grind it out. And I know that he can, like I saw, I, I watched him do it. And when you see somebody do that, it's just, it's so rewarding. Um, it's just an amazing thing to, to know that somebody has that inside of them. And sometimes it's someone who didn't know that they had that inside of them. Um, and I know that Tom already knew he did from his prior stuff, but just as amazing to maybe see somebody remember that they have that inside of them when he talks about like feeling young again and stuff like that. Um, I was just absolutely amazed at, at what he did the last couple of weeks. Well, yeah, thank you, Mike. Thank you. And as far as the the routine after the hike, so you, so Tom, you started crashing at Mike's house. Did you guys have any like um, besides the the pasta dinners? Um, which I'm assuming were at your place, Mike, did you guys have any go-to, like for me, whenever I go hiking, I'm stopping at Dairy Queen in North Conway, no matter what. Like, did you have any go-to places where you had to take Tom after, after he wrapped up? Mike, you're going to have to answer to Katie B on this Dairy Queen business. She doesn't like, like it. This is, oh, come on. You, Katie B is the, the queen of ice cream. We got to get you into Super Secret and Bethlehem. You know, you're at Reckless enough. You should go down the street to Super yeah, Secret. I'll have to look. I'll have to expand my horizons a little bit. Well, we go to, um, we go to this place called Hot Dog City, which is in uh, Porter, Brownfield, because I'm in my father-in-law's over in Brownfield, so I'm in that that area there. Okay. So, but I do like Dairy Queen. <laughs> All right, buddy. Tom started out. We thought we were gonna gonna get him sponsored by Subway because he was a huge fan of Subway yeah. on trail. Um, what spaghetti started? Was it Valentine's Day when I brought you and Elliot home? So KDB could have a beautiful Valentine's Day dinner with with the three stinky <laughs> hikers. Um, once we opened the floodgates on spaghetti, this guy just went ham. Like he was all over it. Um, the Gorham House of Pizza. Tom and I had a, a few really nice post hike meals at. Um, we had one unfortunate uh, after the Carters. You know the Carters are horrible anyway. We tried to get to the Gorham Gorham House of Pizza and they had closed, so we all ended up at McDonald's. It was just the perfect way to end the Carters, just getting kicked yeah. to the curb. <laughs> How, what did you? So did you combine Carter Dome or did you combine that with the Wildcats? We did. Uh, we did the three Carters together. Yeah, we had we had the benefit of strategically didn't didn't know this was going to happen, but you know, so thankful for just the way things worked out. Um, we ended up following an AMC group up to Carter Dome. And we never caught them up until the very summit. And unfortunately, at that point, they were cooked, which just makes you feel horrible when it's a day where, like, we had enough people to help out and we just couldn't catch up to them mm -hmm. until that point. 
Um, so I think they ended up only doing Carter Dome and we ended up breaking out the rest of the Carters ourselves. And huge shout out to the boss man, Mike Cherum, was going to try and come in and meet us. Knew he probably couldn't anyway. Um, but he uh, came in and stomped out the imp trail for us, which was just really nice at the end of the day to get to that junction and see that we weren't going to be wading through snow in the dark trying to figure out where the where the trail was. So that was that's that was great. Cool. So, and you got that happened um, more than once for you guys, where you had people that were gonna gonna step up and say, "I'll, I'll get out and break this trail" because there was a storm that came in. Yeah, a lot of a lot of the friends uh, jumped in at the end to help with isolation, um, which was awesome. You know, to see to see uh, to see Kim and Scarlett out there wearing her her big blue monster feet snowshoes for the whole day it was a pretty awesome experience. And then. Um, specific shout out to uh to brian chase and stephen shaw who uh stephen reached out that week said hey here's what i have that i need to work on for my own stuff for like my grid um what can i do to help you guys out and he said hey man if, if you guys want to go to owl's head like we'd be forever indebted to you and um i think stephen ended up behind brian but brian chase is that kid's built different he uh he broke out 17 miles of owl's head <laughs> And, Never and, switched up. <laughs> and, and you know, Mike, before I forget this point, um, so many people have helped us throughout this whole endeavor. Uh, and my shout out goes to all of them. But the people who I haven't met that went out on Mike's request to break trail on a, a hill we'd be doing the next day. I want to make sure that uh, a big shout out and thank you for those folks that I haven't even met yet that have helped out tremendously. Yeah. I think my sense from it, and I try, I'm trying to stay off social media as much, much as I can, but um, this is a great positive story. And my sense, my, my, so Mike, you were updating once a week or something like that. You'd put in an update. And I think that there was a lot of people that were talking about it. And I, I, you know, I don't talk to a ton of people, but I, a couple of people had mentioned it and we get a lot of messages and people would share mm -hmm. your post or they would share like, um, Hey, you should check this out. They should, they'd be great to get on the show. And I always had it on my radar. Um, I got a little nervous, Mike, when, you know, two months in, I was like, oh boy, this doesn't sound like it's going great, but, um, you guys killed it and it's, it's very impressive and, you know, it's inspiring, Tom. I'm hoping that I'll, I'll be able to keep the, keep the hiking up until I get to be your age for sure. Oh, you will. I, uh, my plan is to repeat this endeavor when I'm 80 years old, but, my concern is Mike will be 10 years older and I just hope he'll be able to keep up with me. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, when you hit, your, when you hit 50, it's, things start to change. You know, that's why I'm very, don't, don't they Mike, uh, don't they? Yeah, they sure do. Well, don't worry guys. I'll just start drinking diet Pepsi and eating Subway three days. And spaghetti. And spaghetti. Can I spaghetti. say the spaghetti thing? Yeah. So when I don't do too much backpacking, but when I do do backpacking immediately, I don't care about the weight situation at all, but I immediately get those chef boy RD um, containers. Cause yeah. that is, I remember I did a Pemi loop and then right before we were going to get to Gio to go over to bed for the night, I set up my, my two cans of Chef Boy RD on top of Salt Twin because I was waiting for my, my friend to get there. And I felt like a new a new person. I, I had such a pep in my step after having those two things of Chef Boy RD. So I get it. I'm a big fan of pasta too. You're a classy guy, Mike. Yeah. Dairy yes. Queen and Chef Boy RD, huh? Yes. Pretty bougie. Only the best. <laughs> Mike, um, 
Mike MC, the one thing I did have to get used to, although Katie B and Mike would start having spaghetti, it was wheat spaghetti. So I had to get used to that. Now you got to you got to remember, Diet Pepsi was not allowed on the property. Uh, I, I I couldn't have that. I couldn't have that because that's not in their wheelhouse. And so Katie B said, "Yeah, I made spaghetti, and I'm looking at it, and it's like, oh my god, it's wheat." Well. Hopefully she won't hear me say this, but in my world, in my my Mrs. Mike upstairs, she discovered uh, chickpea pasta. Oh, so no. now yeah. that's a whole nother oh. level that I got to deal on. with. Well, well, in this house, it's a lentil pasta. Okay. So uh, I'm learning. I'm learning, Mike. I, I, I've even uh, I'm learning. I'm eating wheat pasta now. I've got lentil pasta now, and so. I'm healthy as hell. I'll pick you up and take you to Dairy Queen this summer. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. And, I, and Thank the you. listeners, I I have a confession to make is that I actually, I was hiking Cabot for my winter 4,000 footer list and I passed these guys and I clicked to me and I, you know, I pay attention to this stuff, but it clicked to me after I got past, I said hi to, I think it was Joanne. I said hi to Mike. And then I got past Tom, and I'm pretty sure we just said hi. And then I, it clicked to me that, oh, that's the guy in the Hawaiian shirt. And by the time you guys had gone by, I was like, oh, crap, I didn't say it. So Mike um, had reached out to me and was like, was that you on trail? And, you know, so I'm kicking myself and not get, taking the opportunity to say, you know, talk a little bit more when I saw you guys. When he says he's antisocial, guys, he means it. <laughs> yeah, I was like wrapping up my uh, my hike, and I just had the heads down. But uh, you know, I got to do better. It's okay, man. It happens. Yep, definitely. It happens. All right. So, what did we miss? Anything, Tom? What else do we need to cover here? No, I think um, I think it's been a great conversation. Uh, uh, Mike's opened up the White Mountains to me, uh, as I said before. Very limited climbing, but uh, as far as going to different places. He's opened up the White Mountains, and make no doubt, the White Mountains kicked my butt this winter. It was a good experience, and I plan on continue. Uh, I'm going to do it in the future. Excellent. I just loved it. Shout out to everyone who's, who has helped us. Uh, and goals, I don't know. Mike and I are going to sit down and, and discuss what we're going to do next. Excellent. Are you going to be attending the AMC ceremony? Um, I'm not familiar with that, Mike. Yeah, so you can put in your um, accomplishment and then get a get a uh, a patch. So the the timing was oh, going to be uh, a little tight for us, Tommy. We're going to have to sit down at some point and go through his myriad applications to get all his patches done. But I think the turnaround was going to be tough because of the, the timing of when it is. Yeah, makes sense. So yeah, makes sense. Well, um, well, Mike knows I'm pretty humble, so I'm not. Uh, <laughs> I'm just happy we we did it. I don't need any recognition. What we've gotten so far, it's been humbling, humbling at the all the uh, attention that's gotten. Very humbling, and I appreciate it. We're gonna get you the patch. We'll figure that out. But Michael, oh, we're gonna get a we're gonna have patch day here in a little bit. But um, okay, just a couple of things that I want to add, Mike. Um, There are, you know, obviously I. I did what I, I did what I did and I, I put Tom's story out there on social media a little bit more. Um, I just want to acknowledge that there are some some people uh, getting up there in age that are still doing some absolutely amazing things out there, whether it's gay organizations or, you know, Hiker Ed doing the over 75 grids. Um, you know, we know Tommy's not the only one and, and we know a lot of people don't do a lot of social media stuff, but just 
a ton of respect to them for just having that stuff out there. You know, there's a reason that there's a 48 over 70. And I, I just think it's, it's really, it's cool that there are people doing that. And that gives the rest of us stuff to shoot for, to take care of ourselves and, and hope that our, our joints hold up so that we can be out there. Um, and then just the, the thank you to all of our friends, um, KDB, you know, you can't, you can't do stuff like this if you don't have someone at home who supports you. That's just foundational. But, um, our friends are just amazing. Whenever we needed anything, always there, whether it was breaking trail or showing up at a trailhead just to, to make things better and, and make it a little bit easier on us. So it, it definitely takes a village. And I, I feel like this is an accomplishment that, that we all get to share because everybody was a part of it. So, yeah, I know it's a great story and it's a, um, like you said, there's, and I've run into a lot of people and I usually am a little bit more chatty. I don't know. I was just in the zone the day I saw you guys, but I've talked to a bunch of people that are, you know, I, I met a lady who was, I don't even know how old, but she was going through her second round of grids. I've seen Nancy Hall out on the trail. She's getting up there. I've seen Arlette actually was guiding somebody up on uh, this summer. And it's, it's super impressive to see people, um, doing their accomplishments. And I think in the hiking world, a lot of times, and, and it's amazing people that do the fastest known times and they do all these crazy, um, accomplishments and records. But to me, uh, the stories that I'm most interested in, and I think are most impactful are the regular everyday people that are doing things that they never thought that they could accomplish. Yeah. I tell, I tell people all the time, you know, I'll take somebody out and they'll be like, oh, you know, it's just amazing that you that you do this every single day. And I'm like, you know, it's amazing that you can come up here like three times a year and hike a mountain when you're not in mountain shape. Like, that's what I think is amazing. Like, yeah. you know, cheers to those people who come up and, and do hard things. And, uh, you know, Mary Moon has this thing that she says, like, if you ever want to hear a good story, go to the place where people are doing hard things and you'll find some amazing stories. Yeah. So I just I love the mountains, man. There's so much good out there. Yeah, it's amazing. And then before we wrap up, Mike, um, Mr. Cherum will kill you if you don't give a nice plug for Redline. So do you want to talk about your services and Redline in general? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Redline guiding is is hiking focused, but we do everything. It's kind of like our unofficial motto to say, yeah, we can do that. So if you go out to our website, uh, redlineguiding.com, and you see the other services that we offer, um, it's pretty much a history of the strange requests that we've gotten over the years that we've put on there. So, uh, you know, my buddy Pat Ferland did a pack recovery one time because somebody kicked their pack off the side of Z cliff once. Um, Mike's a justice of the peace. So we do mountaintop weddings. I think I just saw a nice engagement the other day out on the uh, Facebook page. So if you want to get married in the same place, hit us up. If, uh, no bridezillas, but if the people are um, low-key, I'll actually um, – people pay my guide fee and I'll go out and be their wedding photographer. So that's a pretty pretty fun gig. Um, but, yeah, we do uh, mountaineering. We do skiing, um, backpacking, anything. Just ask us. We'll figure it out. And yeah. a lot of training too. Yeah, I got to talk with Stomp actually because um, I did have another idea aside from Lion's Head where I was thinking about maybe reaching out to you guys um, – you know, I had this idea for the Adam slide in my head, which I'm Ooh. interested in. So, but Mike, we'll, Mike and I went up that last fall. Yeah, we'll see. I know, I know that's what piqued my interest. So we'll, we'll see how it goes, but, uh, but redline guiding is great. And then Tom, anything else before we wrap up? No, I think we've uh, discussed uh, a lot tonight and I appreciate the time that you, you've given us, Mike, and I thank you. Excellent. All right. Thank you. 
Do, 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 do. Okay. Coming back in. All right, Stomp. So what do you think? Pretty, pretty inspiring story, right? Yeah, it really is. Uh, just goes to show you that it, it's really, um, never too late to just get up and get moving and just crush it. Yeah. It's really a great, impressive story. Yep. I hope that I find a young buck that's going to drag me around when I'm 70 and shows, show me the ways. <laughs> yeah, for sure. That That is certainly a big part of it. But uh, boy, once you get the bug and you realize that, hey, I can do this and there's nothing yeah. stopping you. Oh, yeah. I can't wait to see what the next adventure is. Yeah. Yeah. It's awesome. And it's sort of like I, I think about it like this winter for me in particular was like, and I think I talk about this a little bit, but like this was the first winter where I really started building out a network of people. And, you know, I think Tom and Mike went to a, a whole nother level here with like relying on friends and people that, you know, new friends and old friends and people that didn't know Tom, that everybody was stepping up to help him out. And, you know, it was really amazing. The fact that like most, I would say almost all the people that do a single season winter 48 have done all the 48s. The fact that he did it without having done a lot of these peaks is, is amazing too. Yeah, absolutely. Great story. Well done. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, right. it's, it's always nice having a, a red line guide with you. We always say we need to get them in here, but uh, hopefully we will. I got a plan. I, I was, I had mentioned it to Mike. I got to follow up with him and Mike Cherum, but I do have an idea that good. I want to, I think I mentioned it to you before, but we'll keep it secret for now. Yeah, sounds good. Excellent. Excellent. All right. So next segment here, Stomp, you want to talk about, uh, so Stomp, you're going to own this. But um, you mm. put together a really good segment about limmer boots. I don't really know a lot about this, but why don't you kick it off and I'll do my best to add some info if I have any. Okay. Yeah. After EMS, Mrs. Stomp and I went to the Eagle Mountain House and I just happened to notice a uh, Conway Daily Sun, like just paper, old newspaper laying on uh, one of the side counters of a chair out there. But um, I just wanted to talk about boots beforehand. I find it funny, Mike, that you are less of a boot guy and more of a trail runner guy. And I still can't quite figure that out. I'm like 100% boot guy. <laughs> I just use them in the winter and then I can't wait to get into the um, into the trail runners in the spring. So yeah, I've just never been a boot person. Yeah, what is it? Weight or... I think for me, breathability. Yeah, I think it's just like the weight on my feet and the the feeling of like being much more nimble on the trail. Like mm-hmm. I like to, well, not so much now, but like when I first started, I moved pretty quickly, and I feel like I was able to sort of maneuver my way down, like rock hopping or jumping up on rocks much easier with just the the trail runners. And I know there's a trade off. Like the the trade off is is that you don't get the ankle support and you do risk sort of bending your ankle or getting more in trouble and that boots give you more stability, but I prefer to be more nimble, Mm. I guess. Yeah. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the boots I'm wearing now are like five pounds a piece. They're definitely like lead weights. Um, I appreciate the, the ankle stability and just being able to carry a heavier pack with less fear of rolling my ankle, which I've been prone to do, unfortunately. But yeah, Mrs. Stomp is like you. Yeah. Do you find that a lot of people that are like, um, involved in like um more of the like hardcore hiking and rescue community like do they tend to prefer boots over trail runners or is it is it just personal preference it's a mix 
it's definitely a mix for members that come into these organizations or, you know, maybe less so for the backpackers. It's, it's, I think for backpacking, you, you definitely need a sturdier boot, but for search and rescue, a lot of, I've noticed that some people come in shoes that are just below the ankle and we have to just gently tell them, Hey, listen, it's, it's a little rougher than you think, uh, what we do here. So you're going to have to put on some, heavier support and cover those angles. I know that when the, so the Trek puts out a survey of the foot preference for AT through hikers. So in 2021, they had, um, it's interesting. So they had, they surveyed like maybe about 400 people, 350 people and 236 people started with trail runners. And then um, about 70 started with hiking boots or the traditional hiking shoes. And then there was like a a little bit of a drop off where about 10 or 15 of those people ended with, and they only surveyed people that completed it. So Mm -hmm. um, about 15 people switched from boots to trail runners. So they grew up a little bit, but yeah, it's about probably around um, 25% boots and 75% trail runners for the through hikers. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. And again, I'm, I'm sure it's probably that mentality of weight and trying to find what works, especially yes. on those long trips. Yeah, exactly. Um, hmm. But tell me about Limmer Boots. Yeah, so I, I have to tell you first about my story. I just discovered a cobbler in um, Laconia. So back to the boots. Um, it, they're called daubs and they replace soles, which is really fantastic things. They, they do focus on a solos, but if you have boots with soles that need work, bring them down there. And I brought my a solo powermatics, which are full leather boots. Um, but I learned something here, which is really interesting for anybody with leather boots. Uh, New Hampshire is known for the sodium chloride on the roads. Um, and unfortunately that sodium chloride can get stuck, uh, where the leather meets the actual, uh, sole of the boot and can start to eat away at the leather. And if this, this happens, then it creates water problems. It destroys waterproof, uh, capacity of a boot. And, um, if you're using something like a snow seal, it makes it even worse because the wax will, just grab the sodium chloride and just hold it there. So if anybody's got the leather, be aware of that. And a simple fix is white vinegar. Uh, White vinegar instead of anything else will get rid of the sodium chloride and it will not ruin the leather. So that's just a little tip that these folks uh, filled me in on. But yeah, as for limmers, I became aware of limmer some time ago uh, working with Fish and Game on Trail. A lot of the Fish and Game officers and AMC uh, hut workers and trail stewards wear these boots and they're just, they're, they're somewhat expensive uh, in my personal opinion. And, um, but they're just renowned around here. So I saw this story in the Conway Daily Sun and it goes into the whole story. So I just uh, wanted to fill everybody in on this. Um, so after five generations Dating back to Bavaria, the all-leather hiking boot maker worn by Fishing Game and AMC and countless others has sold the business. Apparently, Peter Limmer, who's now 67, sold the business to a six-year apprentice who uh, goes by the name of Adam Lane Olson. And this uh, transition happened back in 2021. Uh, Check this out. The the business, uh, as most know, 
has been in Intervale, New Hampshire for the past 73 years. Isn't that awesome? Yeah, that's I mean, amazing. that's a hell of a history. Yeah, it's amazing. So the, the new owner, Mr. Lane Olson, uh, was a former banker and states that uh, the shop produces about 12 pairs of custom boots uh, and off-the-shelf boots per week and about 600 combined per year. And also they do repairs uh, totaling about 200. And um, Mr. Limmer himself is, you know, he's not in the shop as often as usual, but he's working nearby and he still continues to cut and sew the upper leather portions of the boots. Hmm. So it's pretty neat. Um, Now the history is pretty fantastic. So Peter Limmer Sr. was born in 1890 into a family of bootmakers in Bavaria and began learning the trade at the age of nine from his father Franz Xavier Limmer. In 1919, Limmer Sr. started uh, his business in the Bavarian town of Wackendorf. I hope I say that correctly. And uh, he received a master bootmaker certificate in 1921. And apparently this certificate in Germany is one of the highest professional qualifications you can get. (laughs) Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's very cool. Uh, Very cool, very cool. In 1924, after World War I, Limmer Sr. and his wife Marie and two sons, Peter Jr. and Francis, uh, immigrated to Boston. And that's where Peter Sr. had uh, preceded them earlier. And uh, Peter Sr. would soon gain renown for his bootmaking skills, holding, this is really fascinating, holding the patent for the first ski boot made in the United States in 1939. And uh, apparently this boot is still on display at the New England Ski Museum, which I've seen. It's right there in North Conway uh, by the Eastern Slope building. I think you know what that is, right, Mike? Yeah, I think... That's a North Tip. I got to get in there. I know that they had, like, there's a rest stop where they had some displays for the New England Ski Museum, but I got to get over to the other building that's, I think, there. So I'll I'll look in the show notes. I'll link that in the show notes. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's really cool. So check out the museum. You, you'll see some of the original stuff that they made. Um, now, Bob Lang, who's a really huge, huge figure in uh, the ski industry, would actually take one of Pete Sr.'s boots and dip them in polymer plastic, making the first plastic style ski boot. Mm. So it's pretty amazing stuff. Now, in the 50s, Pete Sr., uh, his family moves to Jamaica fro from Jamaica Plain to the White Mountains as the scenery reminded them of good old Bavaria. And uh, Pete Sr. would soon wean himself out of the whole plastic ski boot fabrication um, and just wanted to focus on traditional hiking boots. And um, along with Pete Jr., who was a crew chief uh, with the Strategic Air Forces Command during World War II, and Francis, who fought for the U.S. Army's renowned 10th Mountain Division ski troops. Mike, that's that's a history you should look into. That would be a great segment, just the 10th Mountain up here in uh, New Hampshire. Absolutely amazing history. Yeah, I'll dig into that a little bit. I'll, I'll take that as a homework assignment, Stomp. Oh, for sure. So, let's see. After graduating high school, Peter Limmer 
son of Pete Jr., stepped into the shop full time, uh, having loved the shop and the craft right from the get go. And um, the legacy continued along with his cousin Carl, um, continuing the non custom boot importing business. So apparently, the cousin was importing boots from Bavaria that were um, handmade but not custom. Okay. So, and they still do that today. Now, speaking of today, so the new owner, Olsen, works basically with a three-man crew in the original barn turned boot-making shop with the smell of leather and boot glue as you walk into this place. And uh, just like all these old places, they have an array of historic snapshots and pictures adorning the walls as you walk in. Um, Some famous people that have purchased boots from Limmer include former Supreme Court Justice William O. Douglas who wore limmers when penning an AMC article about the hut system back in 61. Uh, J.D. Salinger, uh, author of Catcher in the Rye, Bradford Washington, late cartographer and explorer. And uh, let's see, they've been featured on WMUR, Northwoods Law, and Outdoor Magazine. I mean, you just, they're just everywhere. And uh, back in 1999, they actually had a uh, display during the Smithsonian Institute's Folklife Festival. And uh, on the National Mall in D.C. It's awesome. Awesome, yeah. So what makes these boots so damn cool? Um, they're super durable. Um, you know, they, they claim, and I don't know personally because I honestly haven't owned a pair, but I'm, I'm hoping one day when I'm a big boy I can, I can get a pair. <laughs> if you care for them, limbers will generally be resold two to three times over a 50 to 60 year period. That's... Pretty, that's, that's pretty much a lifetime, I would think. Yeah. Um, they're known for their indestructibility and waterproof design, which is attributed to a one-piece cowhide upper. So basically what they do is they have one piece of leather without all the seams and stitching. It, and it's the seams and stitching that let the water get in over time. Okay. Currently, the wait uh, is three years from order to final transition to boot. And it's about a thousand dollars for a custom pair. Wow. And you can, but they do sell like the non-customized boots, but like, I feel like right. if I spent that kind of money, like I'd be afraid to take them out hiking, but I guess that's the whole point, right? I suppose so. Yeah. I mean, honestly, if you, they, I, you know, like this, that's why I mentioned Daubs because I really screwed up by not knowing about how to care for my boots. Mm-hmm. And I was wearing my boots thinking, boy, I'm going to wear these forever. But I think they're going to tell you how to take care of them and, um, and whatever else. And um, they just take such great pride in their work that um, two to three resoles, it's pretty amazing. But yeah, it's a big chunk of change. Yeah, yeah, but so, it's... it's- it looks like it's a good investment um, if you're going to be using them. Now, do you ever like see, do you ever notice people wearing them out on trail or like when you're working? Like, do, do, are you familiar enough with these that you sort of spot them and be like, oh, wow, those that person has limbers? Yeah, yeah. No question about it. I've seen them so many times. You know, just generally with the fishing game officers, that's one of the go-tos for the, uh, the agency. Okay. So I see them quite a bit. And they're really easy to notice just because of that, that, one single piece of upper leather that just has no stitching and and all the other fancy stuff um, to make them look flashy, you know? Yeah. I want one now. 
when you're talking about a thousand dollars, I guess it, it makes sense when you read how they make it. So they, they will have people come in that want these boots from around the world. I mean, literally. And what happens? The the customer has to come in, and they get their feet traced and measured, and then after that, they take this uh, le- this single piece of leather and put it over a wooden last to stretch it and adjust it to the shape of the customer's foot. So once that's done. Um, it takes the team about three months to finish the boots, but the three year is the entire trick course, you know, getting the, the, the measurements and getting the, the pieces of leather and everything else that's required. So three months to make the boots, but it's a three year process to finish them. Um, you mentioned those non customized boots. So basically they're made in Bavaria, uh, since 1970 and they run from about 500 to 600 bucks. And, um, this part of the business was also sold by Carl, who I mentioned earlier a few years ago and is now run out of, uh, Colorado for Collins, Colorado by, uh, Chris Sawyer, who is another huge, uh, Limmer fan. So this person's running this, uh, this import business now. And um, for anybody that's interested, they also have lightweight, midweight, and walker shoes as well. Yeah, yeah, that's what it looks like. So they have like a standard, so the -the off-the-shelf, non-custom, they have a standard that looks sort of like similar to the specs of the standard, then the midweight, lightweight, and then they've got the two dress shoes, the Oxford and the walker, and they both look super comfortable and slick. So that's more or less it. Um, if anybody's interested, you could check out the boots at limmerboots.com. It's L-I-M-M-E-R boots.com. And the number that was in the newspaper here was uh, 603-356-5378. So check them out. That's really interesting. You forget like yeah. how many of these like really cool companies are just floating around New England. Yeah, with that kind of history dating back to World War One, I. I mean, you're talking six, seven generations of people making boots. Uh, it's amazing. Vaucluse gear, ultralight ventilation backpack frame. Back sweat sucks in all types of weather and hikes. Not only is it uncomfortable, sweat is a risk factor causing your core temperature to fluctuate if it doesn't evaporate off your back. Check out Vaucluse's ultralight ventilation backpack frame a backpack accessory that installs on your favorite pack size 18 liters to 65 liters and creates a ventilating airflow gap between you and your pack whether you're in hot or cold temps even if you have a pack with a curved frame the ultralight ventilation backpack frame is a real game changer when it comes to airflow visit valclusegear.com to order a cool dry frame today Use promo code SLASHER for $20 discount. That's S-L-A-S-R. Slasher. Slasher. The Slasher. So we've got four um, four stories here. We've got three national, global, and then we have one local one. So let's start with <laughs> the French Alps. So um, guides yeah. among six killed at the Amonset Glacier. So 
six skiers, including two guides. So basically two guides and four um, guests have died after being caught in an avalanche in the French Alps on Sunday. So this disaster happened at the Armanset Glacier near Mont Blanc in southeastern mm. France around midday local time. So it's you know definitely warm enough, I would guess, for the sun to be up and hitting it. So it was a sunny day. Skiing conditions have been described as good before the avalanche struck. Um, there was an injured person that was taken to the hospital. Well, there were eight others that got swept up unharmed. So it was a pretty big group of probably about 15 people that got hit by this avalanche. Um, six victims, a couple in their 20s, a 39-year-old woman and a man in his early 40s who was suspected as being her partner. And then two guides um, were part of the fatality. So apparently the avalanche was caused by a slab of snow detaching from the top of the mountain. Um, according to an official, mountain rescue teams were joined by search and rescue dogs as they worked on Sunday and Monday morning to reach those who were caught. Uh, they said that the risk level on Sunday morning was reasonable and the guides were both local and highly experienced. The group mm-hmm. are all thought to have been backcountry skiing where skiers go on unmarked or unpatrolled areas. So quite a tragedy. The mayor of the town said that this was the most deadly avalanche of the season and, um, you know, there was a video posted by a local ski resort showing a huge wall of snow moving down um, this glacier, but it wasn't sh- it wasn't clear if this particular video showed the avalanche in which the people died. It was just sort of evidence that avalanches were pretty prevalent there. So there were some other witnesses that, you know, there was a hiker that was just in front of the glacier when she saw the avalanche happen, and she did take mm-hmm. out her phone to film it. So there is a little bit of video there. So I'll include this in the show notes, but it looks pretty scary. Like there was no escape in this one. Yeah. So scary. And I don't think we talked about it, but I'm sure everybody's seen that video of the snowboarder that got upside down buried in a pine tree pit of snow and a skier was right behind him. I mean, that wasn't even an an avalanche really. Um, But it's just so terrifying thinking about getting locked into this concrete snow and just oh my god it's horrible yeah yeah those are called spruce traps and you have to actually be really careful about those particularly at this transition from um winter into spring you know i think we're melting quite a bit now so maybe it's not as big of a deal but for the last month or so spruce traps are certainly any uh something that you could really get yourself in trouble especially like we're doing what you do stomp where you bushwhack a lot like that's very dangerous in the winter oh sure for sure. All right. So um, next one here, Tennessee National Guard crews rescue hiker overnight on the Appalachian Trail. So a med flight crew from Tennessee Army National Guard performed an emergency air rescue um, in the dark for a hiker in medical distress along the Appalachian Trail. So 27-year-old hiker needed rescuing from the Great Smoky Mountains. The bubble is, I think, approaching the Great Smoky Mountains right now for the AT2 hmm. hikers. So uh, this hiker was in a remote area near the Silers Bald Shelter along the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. So um, the Tennessee National Guardsmen assigned to the Assault Helicopter Battalion in Knoxville assembled a crew consisting of two pilots, a crew chief, and two flight paramedics, so five people, and they left in a Black Hawk, Black Hawk helicopter after 2 a.m., arrived near the shelter about 30 minutes later, they were doing a search for the victim, and they were able to, I guess, coordinate um, 
they were able to basically figure out his coordinates and mark the site with the fire and strobe light. There was thick cloud cover and darkness, so they had trouble finding the victim. So um, apparently the um, they dropped a strobe light and they were able to sort of, I guess, see the victim in that particular area. So the crew chief then lowered a, a paramedic to the ground by hoist. So it looks like... Um, it looks like the rescue, the hiker in trouble was able to sort of use a strobe light to flash to the helicopters and that's how they found them. So interesting, but the hiker and the medic were then hoisted back up in the helicopter and then they made their way to the Tennessee medical, University of Tennessee medical center in Knoxville. No indication of what exactly was going on with the, the hiker, but they apparently thought it was scary enough that they had to go go save them. Mm-hmm. Interesting about the strobe. Yes. Yeah, it's a good point. I mean, and a lot yeah. of headlamps have that strobe effect, but you have right. to learn how to use it. Sure, sure. I carry one in my pack now. It's a low, low cost one, but I think they're a great, great thing to add to a pack if you have the space and they're, they're, can handle the extra weight. Absolutely, yeah, because I think that, like, especially in cloudy conditions, I would assume a strobe would be a, a little bit easier to pick up than just a solid light if it was that thick. Yeah, yeah. A lot of them come with different flash patterns and intensities and colors. We should talk about that, do a little more research on it, too. Another topic. Yeah, yeah another topic. <laughs> Add it to the list. There we go. Um, this next one here, so a Utah hiker, I saw this last week, so this was a Crazy. Uh, ice climbing situation where... Um, a Utah hiker dies under an ice column after pushing a fellow climber out of the way. So this this lady is a hero. 41-year-old mm-hmm. hiker died in Utah after a massive ice column fell and trapped her. So she was, I don't know if she was climbing or if she was in the vicinity, but a 21-year-old climber was on this column as well before it broke off. She was able to push the 21-year-old out of the column's way. Unfortunately, this 41-year-old female hiker was not able to uh, get out of the way. There was a third hiker that was in the group, and uh, they were, I guess, scaling this what's called Raven Falls, a frozen waterfall near Indian Canyon. It's about two hours away from Salt Lake City. So that third hiker, I guess, he fell about forty feet and sustained serious injuries. And um, you know, I'm assuming one of them either called or they hiked out to get some high, some help. But the 34 year old mm-hmm. man was. Um, in serious condition, but there's no update on his status at this point. So one hiker died, two others were, um, you know, one was definitely injured. The other one I think was pretty close to getting killed. Amazing. That's yeah. Scary. Yeah. Crazy. And then our last story of the week here, Stomp, is a local story where um, a, a person got in trouble at Sabaday Falls. So safety officials mm-hmm. said a rescue Thursday on one of New Hampshire's most popular waterfalls is a sobering reminder that there's still winter conditions in the mountains. So a man fell into the water at Sabaday Falls and was trapped by ice hanging over the edge. Uh, he had been in the water for 45 minutes up to his neck and was experiencing hypothermia. Uh, okay. Continue. <laughs> I would have tapped out in about five minutes. <laughs> um, Dude, yeah. What, what else is the story saying? Anything? Yeah, so team members are specially trained for such conditions. So um, 
it, it's a it's an ice rescue, a swift water rescue, and a high angle rescue all at once. Conway Fire Chief Stephen Tall Solomon said. They said they're well-versed in swift water rescues, and they do numerous ones every year. So they had two swimmers from Conway Swift Water Rescue Team reach the man and then pull him out um, with a rope. I guess um, temperatures are warming, but it's still winter in the mountains. So even at lower elevation, these trails are packed out in snow. It just doesn't really give any details about how the man got himself into that trouble, but I guess he was able to go home after getting medical attention pretty quickly. So, um, you know, the fire chief just basically said, look, you've got to have um, the right footwear. You've got to have crampons or uh, micro spikes and make sure you dress for cold weather because it's still really, you know, cold conditions. So I don't know how this guy ended up in, in, in the water, but he's lucky that he survived at the 45 minutes. Yeah, I can't even imagine. I mean, I've been in similar situations for 30 seconds and almost drowned. So I have no idea how that happened. I mean, other than a miracle. (laughs) Easter weekend miracle, I think. That was probably on Easter or right around there. Yeah, yeah, it was right wow. around there. Remember when I remember when we were hiking and I fell in like up to my like uh, kneecap in that cold, freezing cold day. I thought that I oh, thought I was going to yeah. die because of that. I can't imagine no being underwater. Yeah, it's insane. So glad he's alive. Yep. Yeah, yep, I don't have any details on that one. It's like wow. Yeah, but um, stay safe out there, Stomp. Uh, I'm getting nervous that like now's the time of the year where. Things start picking up. I hope that you have a quiet weekend, but um, people just got to stay safe out there. It's going to be warming up. Snow bridges are going to be breaking, so just stay safe. Mm -hmm. Until next time. Goodbye. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the show, you can subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, YouTube, or wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to learn more about the topics covered in today's show, please check out the show notes and safety information at slasherpodcast.com. That's S-L-A-S-R podcast.com. You can also follow the show on Facebook and Instagram. We hope you'll join us next week for another great show. Until then, on behalf of Mike and Stump, get out there and crush some mega peaks. Now covered in scratches, blisters, and bug bites, Chris Staff wanted to complete his most challenging day hike ever. Fish and game officers say the hiker from Florida activated an emergency beacon yesterday morning. He was hiking along the Appalachian Trail when the weather started to get worse. Officials say the snow was piled up to three feet in some spots, and there was a wind chill of minus one degree. And there's three words that describe this race. Do we all know what they are? Lieutenant James Neeland, New Hampshire Fish and Game. Lieutenant, thanks for being with us today. Thanks for having me. What are some of the most common mistakes you see people make when they're heading out on the trails to hike here in New Hampshire? It seems to me the most common is being unprepared. And I think if they just simply visited uh, hikesafe.com and got a list of the 10 essential items and had those in their packs, they probably would have no need to ever call us at all.